There's alarm over a Chinese spy balloon shot down over the U.S. over the weekend. But similar incidents have happened several times in recent years, so why does this time seem bigger? If we can't even you know, manage a balloon, we are really collectively in a very bad place. It's Monday, February 6th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered, and I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, we hear from first responders in Syria, rescuing survivors and searching for thousands who perished in a massive earthquake that hit that country and neighboring Turkey. There is no electricity, there is no fuel. There are a lot of people still, unfortunately, stuck under the rubble. And some people who lost loved ones to COVID-19 want to create memorials to remember them and the pandemic's wider impact. It's 401, First This News. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The death toll from a 7.8 earthquake and powerful aftershocks in southeastern Turkey and northern Syria has surpassed 3,400. That number is expected to climb. Thousands more people are injured and many remain unaccounted for. Rescuers are fighting against the bitter cold and time. In their search for possible survivors trapped beneath any of the hundreds of residential buildings that have collapsed. NPR's Windsor Johnson reports the White House says it is working closely with Turkey and Syria to coordinate response efforts. The White House says President Biden has authorized an immediate response to address the needs of those injured and displaced by the earthquake. The administration says in addition to personnel already on the ground, it's in the process of deploying two 79-person teams to support search and rescue efforts. The president is also directing USAID and other federal partners to assess response options in the days and weeks ahead. NPR's Windsor Johnston reporting. An Israeli search and rescue team is departing for Turkey to help with quake rescue efforts. Israel is also sending aid to earthquake victims in Syria. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from Tel Aviv on Israel's unique relations in the region that led to these aid efforts. The Israeli military says it's sending 150 soldiers plus firefighters and rescue teams to Turkey to map out sites hit by the earthquake and conduct search and rescue missions. Israel's army is trained to respond to emergency war situations and frequently sends rescue teams around the world following natural disasters. And Israel's ties with Turkey have been improving after a decade of rocky relations with Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who's advocated for the Palestinians. Israel and Syria are in a state of war, but an Israeli official says Israel is sending Syria medicine, blankets, and tents for earthquake victims there. Israeli media say that was following a request from Russia, which plays a key role in Syria. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. U.S. officials say the suspected Chinese spy balloon flying across the U.S. last week did nothing to improve tense U.S.-Chinese relationships. And Pierre Scott Detcher reports the administration says recovery efforts continue off the South Carolina coast to recover the balloon and learn more about it. Kirby says U.S. intelligence learned a lot from last week's balloon affair. We're still analyzing uh, the information that, uh, that we were able to collect uh, off of the balloon before we shot it out of the sky and now uh, we're going to recover it and I suspect we, we may learn even more. Kirby did not provide new details about administration claims that Chinese balloons had violated U.S. airspace during the Trump administration, other than to say the incursions were more brief than last week's transcontinental balloon journey. He said the Biden administration has reached out to key officials from the Trump White House to offer briefings. Scott Detrow, NPR News, the White House. It's NPR. 
And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Massachusetts' highest court is considering whether to raise the age at which someone can be sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole from 18 to 21. The state Supreme Judicial Court heard arguments involving two cases in which the defendants were younger than 21 when they were convicted of murder and sent to prison for life. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports. Defense attorneys argued that brain science shows those younger than 21 are impulsive and can rehabilitate. Attorney Ryan Schiff asked the justices to allow offenders under 21 to be eligible for parole after 15 years. We're not asking you to release anybody from prison. All we're asking is that rather than throwing away the key, you place that key under the careful guard of the parole board. But Suffolk County prosecutors say people mature differently, and a judge could hold an individualized hearing to determine whether a life without parole sentence is appropriate. A ruling from the SJC is expected this summer. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Boston University's Chronic Traumatic Encephalopathy, or CTE, center has new numbers on just how prevalent the neurodegenerative disease is. In the center's brain bank, more than 91 percent of deceased former National Football League players had the disease. It's caused by repetitive head injuries. Anne McKee runs the center. It is exceedingly high, and it's not something that you would ever get by chance alone. McKee says BU's brain bank is not representative of living football players since it's not random which brains are donated. But the rate of CTE is much higher among the deceased former players than in community brain banks, where CTE is seen in 0 to 3 percent of brains. The National Football League has acknowledged a link between the game and the disease. A multi-state commission that regulates fisheries is considering a proposal to tighten standards on lobstering in New England. The Atlantic State's Marine Fisheries Commission could raise the minimum size of lobsters that can be caught by a fraction of an inch by 2024. They hope to increase the declining population of baby lobsters in New England waters. The change would give lobsters more opportunity to reproduce. Well, skies will gradually clear tonight. We'll have a low temperature around 24. Tomorrow, will start out sunny, but clouds will move in over the course of the day. Temps will be in the upper 30s. Right now, it is 45 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Juana Summers, also in Washington. Given the commotion over the Chinese surveillance balloon, you'd think something like this has never happened before, but it has, at least four other times in recent years. So why didn't we hear about it? NPR national security correspondent Greg Myrie has been looking into that. Hi, Greg. Hi, Juana. So, Greg, before we talk about these past episodes, bring us up to date on the recovery of the Chinese balloon that was shot down over the weekend. What's going on there? So several Navy and Coast Guard ships are still looking for the remnants of the balloon that was shot down with a missile on Saturday afternoon just off the coast of South Carolina. It's about six miles offshore, relatively shallow water, less than 50 feet deep, and the Navy is using unmanned subs in the cold Atlantic Ocean to to look for this debris, particularly key equipment like sensors and other high-tech devices. 
And what does the U.S. national security community hope to learn here? Well, the U.S. says it's already learned quite a bit just by tracking the Chinese balloon for a week before it was shot down. Now, General Glenn Van Herc, he's the NORAD commander, the guy in charge of air defenses for North America. He spoke about this this afternoon, and here's how he put it. This uh, gave us the opportunity to assess what they were actually doing, uh, what kind of capabilities existed on the balloon, what kind of transmission capabilities existed. And uh, I think you'll see in the future that uh, that uh, time frame was uh, well worth its uh, value to collect. Okay, so let's talk now about those previous incursions by Chinese balloons. What do we now know about that? Uh, It's happened four times in recent years, three times during the Trump administration, once during the Biden administration. General Van Herc acknowledged that the U.S. security community did not know about these incursions as they were taking place. It was only after the fact the U.S. intelligence community did some forensics and pieced together what had happened. Again, here's General Van Herc. We did not detect those threats. Um, And that's a domain awareness gap that we have to figure out. The intel community, after the fact, made us aware of those uh, balloons that were previously approaching North America or transited North America. And and Juana, he didn't provide additional details on how the intelligence community uh, pieced this together, but the incursions were believed to be brief, unlike this most recent one, which lasted for a week. Okay, lots of new information there. But Greg, how likely is that to change or shape the political back and forth that we've been seeing and hearing? Well, I guess we can hope that it will inform the debate about how these episodes were handled in the past. These previous incursions, which happened during both of Trump and Biden administrations, were not known at the time. So just to state the obvious, this information did not make it up the military chain of command and let alone make it to the White House. Last question. Does the U.S. now feel that it has a good understanding of the Chinese balloon program? Well, at the White House, John Kirby, spokesman for the National Security Council, said the U.S. was aware in general terms of this Chinese balloon program when the Biden administration took office. But the one big unanswered question is why did the Chinese do this in such an obvious way? Chinese espionage is very sophisticated, but this was very clumsy and clunky. The Chinese knew a large balloon uh, would be detected. Mm -hmm. You know, perhaps one of the goals was to see how the U.S. would react to this kind of provocation, and I think we have an answer. It's created a partisan feud in this country, and it's certainly increased friction between the U.S. and China. That is NPR's Greg Myrie. Greg, thanks so much. My pleasure. Well, for more context, we're going to be joined now by Jessica Chen Weiss, a professor of China and Asia-Pacific Studies at Cornell University. She's also a former senior policy advisor to the U.S. State Department. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. So what do you make so far of this whole controversy over the Chinese balloon and the U.S. decision to shoot it down? First, I think it's really unfortunate. The timing in particular of this event meant that Secretary Blinken postponed indefinitely his trip to Beijing, which was even aimed at diffusing some of the tensions and putting a so-called floor under the relationship. Beyond that, I think it's, you know, kind of emblematic of where we are in the relationship, where there are activities that we are mutually doing to each other that both of us find pretty alarming. But the actual extent of the threat has unfortunately, some cases, you know, in this in one in particular, blown wildly out of proportion, if you'll forgive me (laughs) for using the word that. (laughs) Well, before Secretary Blinken canceled his planned visit to Beijing, as you mentioned, how would you have characterized U.S.-China relations? 
I would say that we're in a pretty steep downward spiral, which really began under the Trump administration, something that the Biden administration inherited and, you know, really characterized by a sort of tit-for-tat action-reaction cycle where each of us, you know, Beijing, Washington, trying to really outcompete the other uh, to get a leg up and ensure that we're not vulnerable, uh, you know, to, to each other. And so I would say that coming out of the meeting between President uh, Xi Jinping and President Biden um, at the G20 summit in Bali mm-hmm. last fall, there was really an interest in, I think, on both sides in seeing a little bit more stability in the relationship. That was the momentum, so to speak, coming out of Bali. Um, and this meeting really was to try to you know, push forward there. Then it was derailed by the public firestorm over this balloon, which, you know, the timing was really bad, frankly. And I think the, the Chinese side blundered into this with their with their balloon. Well, can we talk about the rhetoric surrounding this balloon? Because after the balloon was shot down by a U.S. fighter jet, the Chinese defense ministry said that they reserved the right to use, quote, any necessary means in response. What's your assessment of that language from China? Is it more just posturing or is that a real threat to the U.S.? What's your sense? I think it is somewhere between posturing and a specific threat because this incident isn't over. There's going to be the remains or the, the wreckage. The you know there's going to be a lot. I think here, you know, that the Chinese side may feel the need to respond to, and that's even in advance of presented to McCarthy going to Taiwan, et cetera. And so I think that they do. Uh, you know, I think one of the risks here is that the Chinese side, for domestic reasons of their own, you know, feels pressure to respond. Uh, you know, to the shootdown of of their surveillance balloon, um, and it's not like we don't do a lot of survey close in surveillance, uh, you know, near China, and mm-hmm. so I think there's a very real risk um, that they, you know, maybe not. I don't think they're going to shoot down one of our planes, but nonetheless, you know, they could do a lot more, and we're already having seen that tick up a lot more close in harassment unsafe encounters, you know, really designed to show their own, you know, domestic audience uh, in China that, you know, China is not going to just like take this one on the chin. At this point, do you see a real path forward for building trust between these two countries or at least a way to decrease tensions between the U.S. and China? I would agree that this incident and the outcry has made it all the harder to find that pathway forward, which was already uh, pretty narrow and shrinking. But it also underscores the stakes here that if we can't even, you know, manage a balloon, um, which the Pentagon assessed posed no uh, military or even intelligence threat above and beyond what their low Earth orbit satellites uh, could accomplish, then it suggests that, you know, we are really collectively, uh, you know, in a very bad place for managing a potentially more serious uh, incident. And so I think that a pathway still exists, but it will really require reciprocal steps on both sides to begin to not only talk about principles to manage a relationship, but actually begin to think about what are the sets of behaviors uh, that are, you know, increasing the danger on both sides, and that if uh, done, ratcheted back and kind of in a reciprocal fashion, could really bolster our collective security without necessarily coming at the expense of, of defense and deterrence. Jessica Chen Weiss is a professor of China and Asia Pacific Studies at Cornell University and a former senior policy advisor to the U.S. State Department. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been great to be here.
Last night, Viola Davis won a Grammy Award for her audiobook memoir, Finding Me. That's an achievement in itself, but for Davis, it meant something bigger. I just EGOT! EGOT, as in Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony. She now joins 17 others, including Rita Moreno, Whoopi Goldberg, and Jennifer Hudson, who've won all four awards. Viola Davis picked up her Emmy for Outstanding Actress in a Drama Series. I'm Professor Annalise Keating, and this is Criminal Law 100, or as I prefer to call it, How to Get Away with Murder. She became the first black woman to win that particular Emmy, but she's also known as a stage actor. Davis won her first Tony Award in 2001 for her role in August Wilson's play King Hedley II. Her character is pregnant. Her husband, an ex-con, wants her to keep the baby. Ain't raising no kid to have somebody shoot him, to have his friend shoot him, to have the police shoot him. Why you want to bring another life into this world that don't respect life? I don't want to raise no more babies when you got to fight to keep them alive. Davis won a second Tony for the 2010 Broadway revival of Fences, another August Wilson play. She won an Oscar in 2017 for the play's film adaptation. I gave 18 years of my life to stand in the same spot as you. Don't you think I ever wanted other things? Don't you think I had dreams and hopes? What about my life? What about me? When the movie version of Fences came out, there were several high-profile films by and about people of color. And she spoke about that with NPR's Michelle Martin. Now people are saying, this is what I have to give to the artistic community, and I'm going to give it. I'm not going to wait for Hollywood. I'm just going to do it. And I'm going to do it because I deserve to be here. Viola Davis said at the Grammys that she wrote her memoir for her six-year-old self. She's 57 now, and the third Black woman to win an EGOT. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, we'll hear about the grueling efforts of first responders in Syria, rescuing survivors and recovering those killed by the massive earthquake that hit that country and neighboring Turkey. That's ahead in about 15 minutes here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by JBS Home Inspections. With condo common area consultations, as well as home inspections for buyers and sellers throughout greater Boston, jbsinspections.com. On Wall Street, stocks closed the day on a downward trend. The Dow dropped 0.1 percent, 35 points, to finish at 33,891. The Nasdaq fell 1 percent to end the day at 11,887. The S&P 500 dipped 0.6 percent to close out at 4,111. In other business news, the computer and tech services company Dell is laying off employees. The Texas-based company said today it will cut 5 percent of its global workforce. That's more than 6,500 jobs that will be lost. In Massachusetts, Dell has more than 5,000 employees. The company is not saying how many of them will be affected by layoffs. It is 419. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science, featuring Arctic Adventure, an immersive Arctic world exploration with technology as your guide. Tickets at mos.org. Sending Winston flowers from WBUR supports your source for news. See all our choices and send yours today to save 10%. Visit WBUR.org. 
Tonight will start off cloudy, then should clear out for a starry overnight. The low will be in the mid-20s. Tomorrow, after sun in the morning, clouds will move in. We'll see temps in the mid-30s. Wednesday will warm up a bit. The high will be in the upper 40s under sunny skies. And then Thursday, the clouds return. We'll have an increasing chance of rain. The high should be in the mid-40s. Right now, it is 45 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Cars are the second biggest purchase most Americans ever make. But some car dealers engage in a practice called a yo-yo car sale that can entrap people in bad deals. NPR's Chris Arnold has found it happens more than you might think. And right now, the federal government has a chance to crack down. If you've ever bought a car, you know that feeling when you've signed all the paperwork, driven off the lot, and you're like, wow, this is actually my car now. That's how Courtney Johnson felt. Well, I was excited, you know, like I felt like I'd made a good decision as a mother. (laughs) Johnson had just had a baby when she and her husband Darren decided to buy a newer, safer car for the family. They live an hour outside of Orlando. He's a fire sprinkler inspector. She's stopped working to raise the kids. And they bought a little used Hyundai SUV. It had the backup camera, it had all the passenger and the kids' airbags in the back. It was an all-wheel drive car, so it did fit a lot of the safety features that we were looking for. But three weeks later, after the Johnsons had bought the car and taken it home, they got what's called yo-yoed. I received a phone call from the finance manager of the dealership. He told them that the financing for the car had fallen through, and if the Johnsons wanted to keep it, they had to come back and sign a contract with different terms. I was kind of confused. I thought this was a legally binding contract. You know, we've already drove off the lot. We've had this vehicle at home. You know, what do you mean it's not financed? Most of us would be confused, too. But if you've bought a car, odds are good that in the paperwork, there was some legal language saying basically that if the car dealer has trouble with the financing on their end, they can later cancel the deal. They can try to get you to agree to different terms and take the car back if you don't go along with it. It's called a yo-yo sale because they pull you back after you've already bought the car. NPR sent a survey to consumer attorneys who work on auto cases. 40 of them responded. And together, just those few dozen lawyers said that they've gotten calls from nearly 900 car buyers in just the past year who say that they fell victim to one of these yo-yo car sales. In the Johnson's case... We did end up going to the dealership. He had a second contract laying there highlighted. I didn't feel like they were being very honest with me. The New Deal raised the price of the car, paid less for their trade-in, and removed an insurance policy they had in the first deal. But the Johnsons agreed to it to keep the car. But then the dealer called them back again, saying they had to sign yet another deal. And the Johnsons thought the whole thing just seemed really fishy and said, forget it, we're not going to do that. And the dealer sent a tow truck and repossessed the car. Meanwhile, the dealer had already sold off their trade-in vehicle and didn't give it back. We both were just mind-blown at the whole entire situation. Like, 
how is this even possible, you know? The dealership wouldn't answer their calls and it didn't pay off the loan on their old car. It just basically took their old car. So they were stuck paying the loan with no car for close to a year. They eventually used a chunk of their small retirement savings to pay the loan back. I just remember being like embarrassed, confused. And amongst that period of not having a ride, I was like counting out change, trying to give friends money for like gas to get places. The Johnson sued and eventually won. But in NPR's survey, the consumer attorney said about half the time the dealer tells the customer it's too late to get their trade in vehicle back. So what happened to the Johnsons? It is not a one off random thing. It does happen all too frequently. John Van Alst is an attorney with the National Consumer Law Center. He says usually when you finance a car through the dealer, technically you owe the dealership the money for the car. But basically they want to quickly sell your loan off to say the credit arm of Ford or Toyota or some other auto lender. And that's why they often put in the fine print that if they have trouble doing that, they can undo the sale and take the car back from you. They want you to feel bound by the contract, but they want to be able to walk away. Van Alst says to get you to buy the car, the salesperson might agree to a monthly payment that's too low. Sometimes the car dealer made a mistake and thought they'd be able to find a lender. But oftentimes it's used as a technique by dealers to try to force consumers into a worse deal. In other words, the salesperson knows the payment is too low. The deal is too good to be true, but they let you think you've bought the car anyway. You've signed all the paperwork, you go home, you show it to your friends, your family, and then they call you back a day or two later and say, oh no, you're gonna have to accept a 8% higher interest rate. And at that point, it's a whole lot more difficult for the consumer to walk away. The dealer might have already sold their trade-in. That's called unhorsing the car buyer because they don't even have their old trade-in car anymore. So they are then sort of at the mercy of the car dealer. All this is especially relevant right now because the Federal Trade Commission is crafting a new set of rules for car dealers nationwide, and it could crack down. In requesting public comment for its rulemaking, the FTC is asking directly, should we do something specifically to address the problem of yo-yo car sales? Consumer advocates emphatically say yes, but the industry says no. Paul Mitri is with the National Automobile Dealers Association. He says there is nothing wrong with these sales contracts that give dealers the right to cancel the sale later. We're really talking about a situation where you have tens of millions of transactions where this happens all the time. Mitri says most dealers try to avoid calling people back and rarely do because if the buyer walks away, the dealer gets stuck with a car with more mileage on it, making it worth less. And also, and perhaps most significantly, you have an unhappy customer. The reputation of the dealership is key. The dealer association says car buyers like the current system the way it is, and changing the rules would create unnecessary delays. Of course, Mitri says there are always going to be bad actors at some dealerships, but... To the extent there is an issue, it's something that can be addressed under current federal and state law. Still, NPR has found that tougher rules for dealers can make a difference. In 2015, a law to crack down on yo-yo sales went into effect in Maryland. It says after four days, a car sale is final and that dealers can't sell your trade-in until then. NPR obtained complaint data from the state AG's office, and it shows that complaints about yo-yo car sales have since fallen by more than half. 
And with yo-yo sales, there are sometimes some pretty bad outcomes. NPR spoke to two different car buyers where the dealer actually reported the car stolen after the buyer resisted bringing it back or signing a second sales contract. One night I'm just driving and next thing you know, I get pulled over by the police. I got my girlfriend in the car, my little brother. Andre Flint bought a Camaro about a year ago from a used car dealer near Cleveland. But then he says he got tangled up in a yo-yo sale situation. The dealer was trying to get him to bring the car back. Flint said he would, but then he didn't. And the dealer reported the car stolen. Flint says when the police pulled him over, he had the paperwork showing he bought the car legally. They got me at the back of the car. One officer's talking about why is he pulling me over when all the paperwork and everything is in my name. And I'm like, it's so many cop cars behind me, it looked like I robbed a bank. Flint says it was scary. Because it's like, you know, no offense, I'm black too. So it's like any slight movement, anything, man. It, it could have been just all downhill. And, you know, it, it was just, it was terrifying. It shook my girl up because we didn't know what was going to happen. The officers arrested Flint and he spent two nights in jail before he managed to sort it out and get released. Nobody should have to go through something like that when you actually didn't do anything, man. In a letter to the Federal Trade Commission, 18 state attorneys general urged the FTC to do more to stop the harm caused by yo-yo sales. They said the FTC should consider an outright ban on dealers allowing consumers to take a vehicle before the financing is really final. Chris Arnold, NPR News. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, communities in California slowly recover from flooding that happened earlier this year as they hope for lasting protections in the face of more frequent severe weather. Tomorrow night at 9, President Joe Biden will give the annual State of the Union address, but this time he'll do it before a deeply divided Congress. Listen live tomorrow at 9 on the radio and in Spanish and English at WBUR.org. Tonight, we'll have clearing skies and a low of about 24 degrees. Tomorrow, increasing clouds and temperatures in the mid-30s. The sun will return for the middle of the week. Wednesday looks like a beautiful day with a high around 48. Then Thursday, the clouds roll in again with rain likely by afternoon and temps in the mid-40s. Right now, it's 43 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Circle Furniture, over 70 years of artisanal craftsmanship rooted in community and sustainability. Seven locations across Mass and New Hampshire. CircleFurniture.com. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that help you think deeply about the world. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Send your gift almost anywhere in New England, and your support will enrich the lives of thousands of WBUR listeners in Boston and beyond. Order now to save 10% on all four choices, including a dozen long-stemmed red roses. Visit WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In Turkey, search and rescue operations are continuing into the night following a catastrophic earthquake that's rocked wide swaths of Turkey and neighboring Syria. Authorities there report at least 3,400 deaths and fear the number will rise as rescuers on both sides of the border search through tangles of metal and concrete for survivors. The U.S. is sending a pair of search and rescue teams to the region. Here's White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby. In addition to personnel currently on the ground, we are in the process of deploying additional teams, including two 79-person urban search and rescue teams to support 
Turkish search and rescue efforts uh, and to help address the needs of all those who have been hurt or displaced by the earthquake. Most residents were jolted out of sleep by the early morning 7.8 magnitude quake and rushed outside in the rain and snow to escape the falling debris. Republican lawmakers in Virginia have killed an effort to ban convicted insurrectionists from public service jobs, as Ben Pavier of member station VPM tells us the proposal never got a hearing. Virginia Delegate Dan Helmer, a Democrat, argues Republicans didn't want to discuss his bill because they're unwilling to reckon with the January 6th riots. It's evidence of the fact that they are continuing to seek to appeal to an extremist base. Republican Speaker of the House Todd Gilbert said he was unfamiliar with the bill. You'd have to tell me more. I don't really know much about that. Gilbert's spokesperson didn't respond to requests for comment. At least three members of Gilbert's caucus attended the Stop the Steal rally, but they say they didn't participate in the riots. All 140 seats of Virginia's legislature are on the ballot this fall. For NPR News, I'm Ben Pavier in Richmond. Stocks finished lower across the board on Wall Street today. The Dow was down 34 points. The Nasdaq down 119. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Governor Maura Healey will be going to President Biden's State of the Union address tomorrow night. She'll be the guest of Massachusetts Congressman Richard Neal. Neal says he's delighted to be attending with the governor since she's been a steadfast advocate for the people throughout her career. In a statement, Governor Healey says she's honored to attend the address as Congressman Neal's guest. The MBTA is working to reopen the Alewife MBTA station and garage in Cambridge. Both have been closed since someone slammed a car into a barrier on the roof of the garage Saturday. WBUR's Dave Faniff reports. The crash sent a 10,000-pound piece of concrete from the garage to the roof of the MBTA station. T Interim General Manager Jeff Gonville says crews are still in the cleanup phase. We are then moving beyond that to begin opening up the garage using the Russell Field headhouse. And then beyond that, we will be think, focusing on the mezzanine itself and reopening of the mezzanine. Gonville says the parking garage will remain closed until at least midweek, and he has no timetable for when the station itself will reopen with access to the Russell Field headhouse. Shuttle buses will be used at Alewife in place of trains at least through the end of the week. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dave Faniff. A 34-year-old man has been arrested for the murder of 13-year-old Tyler Lawrence in Mattapan. Suffolk County District Attorney Kevin Hayden says Sean Alexander Skerritt is in federal custody on unrelated drug charges. Hayden says Lawrence was gunned down on the street on a Sunday afternoon last month after he visited his grandparents. The DA did not release a motive and says there's a lot investigators still need to learn about the crime. A date has not yet been set for the arraignment. It is 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. In sports, the Celtics face the Pistons in Detroit tonight, and the college hockey beanpot starts this evening at the Garden. Tonight will start off cloudy, then should clear out for a starry overnight. The low will be in the mid-20s. Tomorrow, after sun in the morning, clouds will move in. We'll see a high around 37 degrees. Then Wednesday, will warm up a little bit. Temps will be in the upper 40s under sunny skies. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, 
supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. And from the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, for 30 years committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. A doomsday scenario is how some rescue workers are describing parts of Syria following a series of earthquakes that struck the region early today. An initial quake of 7.8 magnitude hit overnight in Turkey. Between both countries, the death toll is in the thousands, and it's expected to rise. Rescue workers have been on the ground tending to the injured and searching for survivors. Wafa Sadek is one of those people. She's head of the Syria office for the International Medical Corps, and she joins us now from Syria. But we are not disclosing her exact location due to safety concerns that the ongoing civil war in the country could pose. I'm so glad to hear that you're safe, and thank you for being here. Thank you very much for asking me to come. So I know that this happened in the very early morning hours, but I'm hoping that you can describe what these earthquakes felt like, what you saw. It's been disastrous. It happened in the very early hours, around uh, between 3.30 and quarter to four. First earthquake was around two minutes. I mean, in Aleppo, obviously, you know, in the whole area in Turkey, and in Syria was really very, very bad. I mean, that's just devastating. It is. It is very, very devastating. And I mean, even they've heard it um, around uh, the area. Uh, it actually even was heard in Egypt, in Alexandria and in Lebanon. Um, of course, in Damascus, in the capital city and other places. So it was really um, extremely strong and uh, very, very bad. And people were asleep. Unfortunately, so many buildings have collapsed. In Turkey, over 1,000. In Aleppo, um, about 35. In Hama, I mean, and everywhere. Because obviously, as you know, Syria has been in a war for the last 12 years. So things are even extremely bad. And the weather is extremely cold. So... It's very, very bad. The bad weather that you're mentioning, the conditions there being cold and as snowy as they are, I have to imagine that makes the rescue efforts more complicated. Obviously, I mean, especially from Syria's side, because there is no electricity, there is no fuel. Um, There are a lot of people still, unfortunately, stuck under the rubble, and they've been trying to get as many people as they can. But the situation is extremely bad. There has been a civil war in Syria for more than a decade, and I can't help but think that these earthquakes have triggered a new humanitarian crisis in the region there. Absolutely. I mean, it's been 12 years, over a decade, as you mentioned. And it's been disasters for the the people. A lot of them are living in shelters, and now they don't even have shelters. It's really frustrating. It's a big disaster. But we will try our best to deliver what we can, and we are working round the clock from the very early morning. Our staff has been really trying to reach out to all beneficiaries, trying to help and deliver all the services they they can provide. For people who are watching this rescue and recovery effort unfold from a different part of the world, what would you want them to know or understand about what is happening there and what you all are dealing with? 
the message will be these people are really in a very difficult position and they are at the end of the day we are human and we really need to support for all the humanitarian aids and whatever we can uh, this disaster has triggered i think everybody around in this region to see um, the importance of being all together support each other and we try to help because as you mentioned this war has really um, been extremely bad on the people and we really need to focus on the humanitarian not on anything else we've been speaking with wafa sadek she's the head of the syria office of international medical corps thank you so much for being here thank you thank you very much when i was in the senegalese fishing town of kayar on the west coast of africa a few months ago i sat at the edge of the pacific ocean with a fisherman named serene mujop This time of year, we used to catch lots of sardines, he told me. Now it's been 10 years since we've seen them. When fishermen in a fishing town can't make a living, they often look abroad for opportunities. Today at NPR.org, we've launched a sweeping project where you can take the journey many men like him make, traveling from Senegal to Morocco to Spain. Some of our reporting relies on research by environmental scientist Dihia Belhabib, whose work focuses on illegal fishing. Welcome to All Things Considered. Hello. So many fishermen in Senegal told me they'd seen catches plummet in the last 10 or 20 years, and they blamed what they called foreign trawlers from China or Europe. What does that phrase actually mean? Who are these foreign trawlers? Foreign trawlers are basically big boats, massive boats, some of which are the same size in a soccer field for reference, that come in from other countries and catch the same fish than these Senegalese fishermen do. So in essence, they're basically competing for the same fish. And the coastlines in Senegal are filled with wooden boats called pirogues, which people go out to catch fish every day. Can you give us a sense of how much fish a pirogue can catch compared to a trawler? Let's just say that these pirogues are very, very small compared to these trawlers, and they can basically catch 300 times higher than what a pirogue can catch. 300 times? Yes. So a trawler can basically catch the same amount of fish and a pirogue could catch in one year. A year versus like one fishing trip. Exactly. Now, countries in West Africa have signed fishing agreements with foreign governments. So are these foreign trawlers operating legally or illegally? Well, it depends, because there are some trawlers that operate completely legally. There are some trawlers that are authorized to fish there, but they still kind of do not comply with the regulations that are meant for sustainability. And then you have trawlers that operate completely illegally, despite the existence of agreements with other countries. What does illegal fishing look like? How does that actually happen? There are lots of types of illegal fishing. So inherently, you have a trawler that is not authorized to fish within these waters that comes in which we call an incursion, takes fish away and leaves. And that is with no authorization and no knowledge of the local authorities. And you have others that are authorized, but they may use a different gear. They may go into what we call an artisanal zone, which is a restricted area for the artisanal sector and fish there, which is still illegal fishing. And yet they still have an authorization to fish. So it's a matter of you having a driving license, if you will, but then drinking and driving. Hmm. Yeah. The boats that these fishermen use to catch their fish are the same boats in many cases that migrants use to make the journey to Europe. And so many people told us about European patrols in Senegalese water to stop those pirogues from leaving. 
Spanish military boats actually intercepting these pirogues. Why hasn't the international community put the same effort into protecting the fisheries so that some of these people in Senegal might be able to stay where they are? It's ironic, isn't it? Because they take their fish away, but they are not taking their people in there. So as we often say, fish does not need a visa. In this particular case, the migrations or the illegal migrations affect Europe, but the fish that is going in there, albeit illegally sometimes, does not have the same impact or contraire. Environmental scientist Dihia Belhabib, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Her research helped inform our immersive digital project following the journey from Senegal to Morocco to Spain, which you can find at npr.org. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Californians are dealing with the aftermath of January's big storms, storms that could only get worse, according to some climate scientists, as the world continues to warm. In one recently flooded neighborhood, residents are looking for a long term fix. KQED climate reporter Ezra David Romero paid a visit. Antonio Lopez walks a recently flooded neighborhood in East Palo Alto, about half an hour south of San Francisco, along the bay. A pump removes water from a parking garage that San Francisco Creek turned into a lake. A New Year's Eve storm dropped nearly four inches of rain, engorging the creek. Floodwaters poured into the community. Around two dozen cars were swamped. But the ones you see here, I almost guarantee you, they're totaled. They can't be moved because the water hit their motor. Lopez is the city's vice mayor. He helped a woman frantically trying to get into her car the day of the flood. It was heartbreaking, man, trying to salvage her possessions from her car because the water came up all the way to the window. Early estimates put the damage at more than $100,000. Statewide, the economic losses from flooding are estimated between 5 and $7 billion. That's according to Moody's RMS, which models global catastrophe risk and solutions. President Joe Biden visited the region in mid-January to tour flooded communities. In the San Francisco Bay Area, I've instructed my administration to bring every element of the federal government together with the help of immediate needs to long-term rebuilding. Federal disaster assistance is available for nine California counties, including San Mateo, where East Palo Alto is. In East Palo Alto, community organizer Maricela Ramos leads an effort to get outside aid to help pay for local damages. She says the totaled cars were many residents' primary mode of transportation to get to their jobs, to generate money, to pay rent, and to buy food for their kids. San Francisco Creek has flooded many times. A new study out last month in the journal Nature Climate Change projects the most extreme winter storms will only get more intense. Study co-author Ruby Lung is with the U.S. Pacific Northwest National Lab. Assuming we continue to use fossil energy in, in a similar way, we project about 30 percent increase in the total precipitation, but such number could be reduced if we can do something about it. She says all that water can strain or even break through levees like floodwaters did in Monterey County last month. The information that we used before to design the infrastructure may not be relevant anymore, and we need to incorporate knowledge that we now have about how the future may be changing. 
In East Palo Alto, city and regional leaders have already been working on a long-term fix to allow more water to flow from San Francisco Creek to the bay. They have long had plans to build a new bridge and deepen and widen the creek channel. We know we can't completely do away with the risk of flooding. Margaret Bruce leads the effort. She's the executive director of the San Francisco Creek Joint Powers Authority. The plan is to protect the community from future catastrophic flood events. We can no longer plan our future looking in the rearview mirror. Bruce says it will cost at least $50 million. State or federal infrastructure money could help. Otherwise, San Mateo County, East Palo Alto, and nearby cities like Palo Alto and Menlo Park are on the hook to finish it. Instead of having the creek as a boundary, the creek has ended up being the thing that joins the counties in these three cities. If funded, the creek restoration could be completed as soon as next year. For NPR News, I'm Ezra David Romero in East Palo Alto. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Ahead on All Things Considered, we'll have the latest on rescue and recovery efforts in Turkey, which was hit by a devastating earthquake. And we'll look at why that part of the world is so seismically active. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals, offering in-person and online events, including herbal classes, meditations, and more. Calendar at cambridgenaturals.com events. Skies will gradually clear tonight. We'll have a low temperature around 24. Tomorrow will start out bright and sunny, but clouds will move in over the course of the day. Temps will be in the mid to upper 30s. Wednesday should be mostly sunny and warmer with a high around 47 degrees. And Thursday is looking cloudy and rainy by the afternoon. Thursday's temps will be in the mid 40s. And right now it is 43 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer. When the Japanese pufferfish wants to find a mate, it sets out to impress with all it has. Its fins and a sandy ocean floor. And over several days and nights without sleep, it carves the most incredible, symmetrical sculpture in the sand, a huge circular array of ridges, troughs, peaks and valleys, decorated with perfectly placed shells scavenged from the seabed. It's beautiful, not just to a pufferfish, but to our eyes too. And why does it create this thing of beauty? It just knows it's what it needs to do for love. Fortunately, it's so much easier for you to create something beautiful. Send your Valentine Winston Flowers from WBUR, and in doing so, you'll create stories that enrich and inspire all of us. Visit WBUR.org to get started. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Three years after COVID arrived in the U.S., a lot of people are relieved that some of its worst complications are in the rearview mirror. But others who've lost loved ones to the virus want the pandemic's toll to be recognized and remembered. Colorado Public Radio's John Daly reports. Jill Svensson lost her mother Trudy two years ago, just weeks before the vaccine became available. She says her mom had... At least 10 years left in her, if it weren't for COVID. That loss was traumatic and something that the families of nearly 15,000 other Coloradans have had to go through. I really think they have been forgotten. 
I feel like we've all moved on. And Svensson wishes there was some community memorial, some place, something, to mark that gaping void the pandemic left for so many Coloradans. It's just become a controversy. I think it would honor so many people and their families. I would love something like that. In Mary Eisenbeis's backyard across the city, she says she's felt the same thing. Earlier in the pandemic, she created her own memorial. She drew big numbers with a Sharpie on construction paper and then hung them up on her front fence in suburban Denver as the U.S. death toll rose. I thought it would be a way for people to see, and so what I did was I posted the numbers every day. A neighbor told Eisenbeis she'd first lost her father, then her husband. She said she was moved by words Eisenbeis also hung up, their lives matter. She said that was touching to her, that this mattered in the bigger picture and, and that other people cared. But a few months later, public debate over things like vaccines and masks was getting heated. Then came ferocious winds, ones that fueled Colorado's most destructive wildfire. Those winds also blew Eisenbeis's numbers. Down the street and decided, at least for the time being, that we were going to stop. I meet Nikki Gonzalez on the grounds of the state capitol, home to lots of more permanent historic monuments. Gonzalez, a former state historian, teaches at Regis University. She says one was recently removed. It used to be the pedestal that held the Civil War soldier. It's being replaced by a statue commemorating the Sand Creek Massacre of Native Americans. There's a plaque with the Gettysburg Address, a replica of the Liberty Bell, and a stone and concrete monument to those who died in. World War I, II, the Korean War, Vietnam War, the Persian Gulf War, and the Afghanistan War. Colorado also has memorials to civic leaders and sports heroes, victims of 9-11, fires, floods, mine disasters, and mass shootings. But the COVID-19 pandemic? Not that I know of. This despite the coronavirus pandemic claiming more Colorado lives than the flu pandemic a century ago. There's also no monument to that. Well, I think we're still in the pandemic. And so it's hard to memorialize something that you're still in the midst of. And also, I think it's been such a politically divisive pandemic, period. We haven't really grappled with it enough yet. Colorado does memorialize Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. At this year's MLK Day Parade, 69-year-old Berta Steen wears a mask she says she's lost someone to COVID. Yeah, I had an auntie on uh, my daddy's side in Victoria, Texas, passed away in a nursing home. She likes the idea of honoring them. Yeah, we all, every state need to uh, remember the people that passed away with the COVID. You know, they, they didn't know. A lot of people didn't know they had it. For now, individual gravestones are the only COVID memorials. Jill Svensson, who lost her mom two years ago, visits hers. Trudy Bershoff, born March 28, 1940, and died December 2, 2020. Trudy's bears a Star of David and a Rose. There were strict protocols in place when she was buried. There's hardly anybody here to say goodbye to her. Svensson thinks many Colorado families also long for a way to process their trauma. I think just having something to represent all of them would be amazing. Somewhere people could go and say, that was my uncle, my mom, my dad. She wonders if it's time Colorado not just counts the lives lost, but fully remembers them too. For NPR News, I'm John Daly in Denver. 
Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Today's story comes from Nancy Pardo. In 2015, Nancy and her husband Tom spent a few days hiking in a national park in Maine. On their walk one morning, Tom fainted. Later that day, he fainted again, so they went straight to the nearest medical center, Mount Desert Island Hospital in Bar Harbor, Maine. They did many, many tests, took several hours, blood tests, everything, and no determination could be made as to why he had fainted. So they released us, and before we left, I said, if it happens again, do we have to come back? And they said, absolutely. So we had walked about four blocks from the hospital, and we were looking at a menu to see what we might have for lunch when Tom went down again. This time, he went down harder and stayed out longer. And then after several days at Mount Desert Island with different medications, they determined that Tom needed a heart catheterization. So we were transferred to the quote unquote big hospital, the Eastern Maine Medical Center in Bangor. And the doctor did a heart catheterization, explained that no stent was needed. He didn't find any blockages. And the next morning when the doctor came to release us, I asked him, what do we do now? I was very afraid. And I thought maybe he would say, you should go for this test or that test or see this kind of doctor or that kind of doctor but he didn't say any of that. Dr. Isidore O'Carey, who I will remember my whole life, he said, go live your life. Go live your life. And it wasn't in a flippant way. It was his advice to us. And that's what we've done. Tom's had two bouts of cancer in 2009 and 2018. He is fine now. We are still living our lives and taking Dr. O'Carey's advice as often as we can, trying not to be afraid, and to go live our lives. Today, Nancy tells us that Tom is walking five miles or more a day and continues to do well. Cardiologist Isadora O'Carey still works at the Eastern Maine Medical Center. You can find more stories from My Unsung Hero wherever you get your podcasts. Support for My Unsung Hero comes from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, 
providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at asylum.news. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Coming up next hour on All Things Considered, authorities in Ohio work to prevent a major explosion from the wreckage of a derailed train near the Pennsylvania line. Tonight will be cloudy to start, then skies will clear overnight with temps in the mid-20s. We'll have a sunny start tomorrow, then clouds will arrive by afternoon with a high around 36 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by downtown Boston's new Third Space. Pop-up art gallery, live performances, lunch hangout, and Thursday night events. More at downtownboston.org slash thirdspace. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. An earthquake has killed more than 2,200 people in Turkey and Syria. It's been called by some the biggest, others say, well, it's the second worst earthquake here in the past hundred years. But either way, it was hugely destructive. Poor weather is getting in the way of rescue efforts. It's Monday, February 6th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, a preview of President Biden's State of the Union address that'll take place tomorrow. Federal officials are investigating the recent deaths of four Americans on cruises to Antarctica, highlighting the dangers of the cruises, which have been growing more popular. And we hear from Samara Joy, the young jazz singer who last night won two Grammys, including Best New Artist. It's 5.01. News headlines are first. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The White House says it is working closely with Turkey and Syria to coordinate response efforts after a powerful earthquake devastated the region. The Associated Press is putting the death toll at more than 3,400, citing local authorities. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the magnitude 7.8 quake toppled hundreds of residential buildings in both countries. The Biden administration says it stands ready to provide any and all needed assistance to Turkey and Syria. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says President Biden has authorized an immediate response in addition to the U.S. personnel currently on the ground. We are in the process of deploying additional teams to support Turkish search and rescue efforts and address the needs of those injured and displaced by the earthquakes. U.S.-supported humanitarian partners are also responding to the destruction in Syria. The White House says it will continue to closely monitor the situation in coordination with Turkey's leadership in the days and weeks ahead. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Federal prosecutors are charging a neo-Nazi leader and a Maryland woman with conspiring to attack power stations around Baltimore. NPR's Ryan Lucas has more on the charges unsealed today in federal court in Maryland. Officials say Brandon Russell and Sarah Clendaniel were arrested late last Friday. According to court papers, the pair were plotting to attack electrical substations in the Baltimore area. 
Russell is the founder of the neo-Nazi group Adam Waffen Division. He and Clint Daniel are each charged with conspiracy to destroy an energy facility. According to court documents, Clint Daniel said if they managed to hit several of the Baltimore area substations on the same day, it would, quote, completely destroy this whole city. The pair had previously corresponded while serving prison sentences in separate facilities. Clint Daniel for armed robbery, Russell for possessing bomb-making materials. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. Dell says it plans to lay off more than 6,000 workers around the globe. NPR's Bobby Allen reports it's the latest tech firm to cut jobs as reduced demand for products and services sinks in. The pandemic was boom times for computer makers like Dell, but in recent months, sales have dropped sharply. Computer purchases declined nearly 40% in the most recent quarter compared to the previous year. And so Dell said in a new regulatory filing that it's laying off more than 6,600 workers, or about 5% of its workforce. It comes as Amazon, Microsoft, Google, and Facebook parent company Meta have shed tens of thousands of jobs. Executives cite overzealous hiring at the height of the pandemic and fears of a recession as reasons for the cost-cutting. Analysts say the big tech cuts are aimed at satisfying shareholders who have grown frustrated at how much tech stocks have gotten hammered in recent months. Bobby Allen, NPR News. Stocks losing ground to start the new trading week. The Dow Jones Industrial Average fell. The Nasdaq was also lower today. Authorities in Ohio were releasing toxic gas today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren says President Biden should run for a second term in office. She says the president has done a terrific job. Her comments come after an Associated Press poll finds only 37 percent of Democrats in the U.S. want Biden to run again. The Massachusetts Democrat tells WBUR Biden has accomplished a lot in his first two years as president. We have not just the $35 cap on insulin, the $2,000 cap on how much people spend annually on drugs if they have Medicare. But we have the biggest package on climate in the history of the world. Warren also points to the Biden administration's $1 trillion infrastructure law to repair the nation's roads, bridges, and railways. The president will give his second State of the Union address tomorrow night. You can hear it live here on 90.9 WBUR beginning at 9 p.m. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is taking steps to fulfill her pledge to completely electrify the school district's 700-bus fleet by 2030. She said today the city is adding 20 electric school buses to its fleet. They'll be on the roads after February break, following training for drivers, mechanics, and operations staff. Under a plan approved over the weekend by the Democratic National Committee, South Carolina would hold the nation's first Democratic presidential primary in 2024. WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports that that will end the privileged position long held by New Hampshire on the voting calendar. Many Democrats say it's unfair to give so much influence to small, overwhelmingly white states like New Hampshire and Iowa. So under the new plan, South Carolina will vote first on February 3rd, followed by New Hampshire and Nevada three days later. Party chairman Jamie Harrison says the Democratic Party looks like America and so does this plan. But New Hampshire has a state law that requires its primary to be first, and Governor Chris Sununu says that won't change. So now the National Democrat Party is trying to change our state law. It, it's, it, if it weren't so serious, it would be an absolute joke. On the GOP side, Republicans will keep the Iowa caucuses and the New Hampshire primary first on their election schedule. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. 
Taking a look at the forecast tonight, we'll have clearing skies and a low of about 24 degrees. Tomorrow, increasing clouds and temperatures in the mid-30s. The sun will return for the middle of the week. Wednesday looks like a beautiful day with a high around 47. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to inspiring and enabling the next generation of inventors to improve lives around the world. More information is available at lemelson.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. A massive, powerful earthquake hit parts of Turkey and northern Syria today. It reverberated through the Mideast. At least 3,400 people are dead, nearly 10,000 injured. Amr al-Salmo is among those searching for survivors among the rubble. Every second is important for saving lives. Every second. Some people, we, we are hearing their voices right now. We, can, we cannot reach them. He's a White Helmets volunteer in Syria near the Turkish border. And as promises of international aid pour into the region, we asked what he needed most. We have a number of heavy vehicles, but it's not enough to deal with around 200 buildings on the ground. It's so, it's so much. You need the heavy vehicles to, uh, to raise the rubble, to, uh, to remove the rubble. For more now, we go to NPR's Peter Kenyon in Istanbul. Hi, Peter. Hi, Ari. So this earthquake was magnitude 7.8. Can you give us a sense of how widely this was felt? Well, as far north as Lebanon, as far south as Cairo, that uh, kind of sums it up. Uh, It's been called uh, by some the biggest. Others say, well, it's the second worst earthquake here in the past hundred years. But either way, it was hugely destructive. Now, the death toll is considerably lower than a deadly quake in 1999. That left more than 17,000 people dead. Uh, This is a lot less than that, of course, but officials do expect the toll to keep rising. The question is how high. Uh, Many, many people injured. Nearly 2,500 people have, though, been pulled alive from the rubble so far uh, after more than 2,800 buildings collapsed. Uh, Some people here say there is some reason to hope the death toll won't approach that huge total from 1999. Building standards are better in Turkey since then, for one thing. Other measures have been put in place. But as officials here have been saying all day long, there's no guarantee against a 7.8 magnitude earthquake. It's just too big. There's going to be loss of life. People are just wondering how great a loss. And the first 72 hours are extremely important, experts say, in terms of finding survivors. President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has declared a seven-day mourning period, Ari. What can you tell us about the situation in Syria, which was also really hard hit? Yes, very hard hit. We're hearing more than 800 dead in Syria, uh, also where much of the reported damage occurred, outside of Turkey, of course. Uh, I should say there have also been a number of aftershocks, Uh, even some debate about whether the biggest one at 7.5 magnitude was actually an aftershock or a second quake on a different fault line. I don't have that geological answer, but clearly two events of that size, magnitude 7.5 or higher, on the same day is a huge blow to any population. You said how important the first few days of a rescue operation are. I know Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has been updating people throughout the day. Tell us about the rescue and recovery effort. Well, Turkey's emergency management agency is calling for aid to come in and saying there's an urgent need to keep the roads open and communications open. The agency says sending aid without coordinating first with the agency will only complicate Turkey's response to the quake. Uh, President Erdogan echoed that comment. He said uh, aid sent without the agency's cooperation, quote, will hurt the situation. Erdogan mentioned that international support has been flooding in already. Can you give us a sense of what's being offered? 
Well, one interesting thing, Turkey's had some very tense times with NATO uh, recently because of Erdogan's opposition to Sweden's bid to join the bloc. But NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg says members of the alliance are already mobilizing support to help Turkey deal with the quake's destruction. He said, quote, uh, NATO expresses full solidarity with Turkey in the aftermath of this terrible quake. Uh, the EU's uh, civil protection mechanism also kicking in, rescue teams from Romania and the Netherlands on their way. And U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken released a statement saying Washington's initial assessment response is already underway. And Blinken said, quote, we're determined to do all that we can to help those affected by these earthquakes in the days, weeks, and months ahead. So clearly political tensions are being at least temporarily set aside as other nations prepare to help Turkey deal with this natural disaster. That's NPR's Peter Kenyon in Istanbul. Thank you. Thanks, Ari. Seismologists say that this section of Turkey was long overdue for a big earthquake. NPR's Jeff Brumfield has more on why the quake still caused so much damage. To understand what just happened, here's the big picture. The Arabian Peninsula is making its way north into the Eurasian Plate, and the entire nation of Turkey is getting squeezed aside. Michael Steckler is at the Levant Doherty Earth Observatory at Columbia University. Arabia is slowly moving north and has been colliding with, with Turkey, and Turkey is, is moving out of the way to the west. This earthquake occurred at the junction of several faults involved with that tectonic push. It's a, it's a pretty busy and, and complicated area. But Turkish seismologists had suspected that at some point there was going to be a big quake in this region. This is not a surprise for us. Fatih Balut is a seismologist at Boğaziçi University in Istanbul. Balut says stress has been building up in this part of Turkey for hundreds of years. His team and others have been predicting an earthquake about this size, though they couldn't say exactly when it would happen. The quake was a kind that occurs when two parts of the earth slide past each other. As a result, the damage is spread along the fault line. It is quite large. You know, uh, like 10 cities are affected structurally affected in Turkey. Turkey and Syria have been at the epicenter of earthquakes for millennia, including a quake that flattened the Syrian city of Aleppo in 1138. Turkey now has seismic codes to try and keep buildings standing. But Balut says because this area hadn't been hit hard for centuries, it's quite possible that some of the buildings predate the codes. Sometimes there are very old things built before these rules exist. Steckler adds that he believes some construction in Turkey circumvents the rules. I know certainly in, in Istanbul there's a lot of illegal construction that goes on that and people not following the building codes. Strong aftershocks are continuing to rock the region. Steckler says he expects they may go on for a while. That whole area, all the pieces of the earth will slowly adjust and break and rupture and, and come to a new equilibrium. While the people above struggle to come to grips with the devastating aftermath of this powerful quake. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. President Biden spent the weekend at Camp David working on a very big speech. That's right. It is time for the State of the Union. It's the annual address where the president lays out his priorities and his plans for the year ahead. And one of many people who will be watching that speech is our colleague Mara Elias, an NPR national political correspondent. Hey, Mara. Hi, Juana. So, Mara, as you well know, this is a tried and true Washington tradition. But tell us what you will be watching for this year. 
That's right. Big Washington tradition. It's a Washington set piece, the president addressing a joint session of Congress. It's really important politically because it's the biggest audience a president gets all year, maybe 38 million people. And especially important because this is a president that we expect is about to announce for re-election. So it's very hard not to see this speech as a kind of curtain raiser or preview for his campaign. And the other dynamic that's new with this State of the Union speech is divided government. We now have a Republican House and a Democratic Senate, and one of the most noticeable things about the speech tomorrow night is you will be looking at Biden, and instead of Nancy Pelosi and Kamala Harris on the podium behind him, it will be Kevin McCarthy and Kamala Harris. So it's a whole new chapter for Joe Biden. Yeah, different backdrop there. So Mara, how is he going to deal with that? Do you expect that we'll hear the president offering to work across the aisle to get things done? And I should just ask, how realistic is that given the makeup that we see on Capitol Hill? Well, there will be plenty of bipartisan talk about reaching across the aisle. That's part of Joe Biden's brand. But that is not realistic. What I'm watching for more tomorrow night is how Biden uses the House Republicans as a foil. You know, presidents who've lost one or both houses of Congress in their first midterm, and there have been plenty of them, have generally used divided government as an opportunity. And I'm looking for Joe Biden to cast himself as a reasonable bipartisan guy who's passed all kinds of practical popular policies like an infrastructure bill and gun safety bill and a bill to make American computer chips more competitive with China. And he will contrast that with House Republicans, who we will paint as extremists who are fighting among themselves. And I think that he'll talk about the debt ceiling, which is the first big issue uh, for divided government. He will be looking to use this giant audience as an opportunity to cast Republicans as willing to let the U.S. go into default and ruin the country's credit rating and the economy, all in an effort to cut Medicare and Social Security. Mm. And I expect then that the president will still be laying out some sort of agenda of his own, right? Some sort of agenda, but not the big laundry list that he did early in his term. The White House knew that maybe he would only have two years to pass his agenda. That's why they worked so hard to get it done. They thought that they might lose one or both houses of Congress, and they did. I think he will call on Congress to pass things that he knows are popular with Democrats and the broader public, even if they're unlikely to get through Congress. Things like police reform after the Tyree Nichols fatal beating or an assault weapons ban after the recent spate of mass shootings. But I don't think tomorrow night is a time to lay out a big new legislative agenda. So part of the set piece of the speech is that the president gets to fill in the blank. The state of the union is what? How do you expect him to end that sentence? That's a good question. I think Biden will give an optimistic outlook on the state of the union. But for him, the state of the union is pretty mixed. He knows that two-thirds of Americans think the country's on the wrong track, despite all the good economic news he can point to, like inflation coming down, a recent really good jobs report, COVID in the rearview mirror. His approval ratings have stayed stubbornly bad. The state of the economy might be getting better, but the state of Joe Biden is remarkably stuck. He is an unpopular president with a majority of his own party's voters saying they'd prefer someone other than him to be their nominee. And the president has been preparing for this year's big speech while also dealing with the aftermath of the Chinese surveillance balloon that was shot down on Saturday. It has to play in here. Yeah. Well, there's nothing more easily politicized than something that has to do with China. But I think the president tomorrow night will point to the fact that he acted quickly and safely to shoot down the balloon at a moment when it would do the least harm to people on the ground from falling debris mm -hmm. and when the U.S. intelligence community had their biggest chance to actually collect technology and from the balloon and find out what was in it. That's NPR's Mara Eliasson. Mara, thank you. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, NPR's Mary Louise Kelly gets a look inside Iran, where the economy has tanked after popular protests rocked the nation last September. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. On Wall Street, stocks closed the day down a bit. The Dow dipped 0.1 percent, 35 points, to finish at 33,891. Nasdaq lost 1 percent to end the day at 11,887. The S&P 500 dropped 0.6 percent to close out at 4,111. Checking other business news, the statewide average price of a gallon of gasoline remains roughly steady. The latest AAA Northeast survey shows the average at 3.43 a gallon. That's down a penny from last week. It's eight cents higher than a month ago. The average price in Boston is 3.45 a gallon, while the lowest average price in the state is in Bristol County at 3.30 a gallon. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhill Framers, Back Bay, and Somerville. Celebrating 50 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses, StanhopeFramers.com. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR supports your commitment to curiosity. Order yours now to save 10%. Visit WBUR.org. Tonight will start off cloudy, then should clear out for some starry skies. The low will be in the mid-20s. Tomorrow, after sun in the morning, clouds will move in. We'll see a high around 36 degrees. Wednesday will warm up. Temps in the upper 40s under sunny skies. And then Thursday, the clouds return and we'll have a chance of rain. The high should be in the mid-40s on Thursday. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the candidate search process. Businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates, all from the employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks DayQuil Severe, a daytime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at Vicks.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. In Ohio, officials have been working to avert a catastrophe at the site of a train derailment and prevent more harm from coming from the wreckage. The train crashed Friday night in East Palestine, a town about 75 miles south of Cleveland near the Ohio-Pennsylvania state line. Reporter Julie Grant with the Allegheny Front is following the story. Hi, Julie. Hi there. So... Ohio Governor Mike DeWine traveled this afternoon to East Palestine, where he met with local authorities and officials from the Environmental Protection Agency. What more can you tell us? Well, as you said, this derailment happened late Friday. There's been lots of talk about what to do with these cars. Some of them are filled with chemicals. This afternoon, authorities began what they called a controlled release, slowly allowing the chemicals to escape. They were afraid of the train cars exploding on their own, so with this release, it was all about gaining control to avert a potential catastrophe. Scott Deutsch of Norfolk Southern Rail- Railroad explained the process. They cut a hole in the cars so the material could leak into a trench where they placed flares. This allows us to control that operation and not have the car react and do it itself. 
It was important to do this because five of the cars contained vinyl chloride, a chemical that was considered unstable. Any explosion could have sent shrapnel and toxics into the air in a one or two mile radius of this area of Ohio and neighboring Pennsylvania. Mm. And early on, authorities had warned people to evacuate. Did people seem to listen to that warning? Yeah, there was a call early on and many people did leave, but several hundred stayed. Authorities started going door to door, urging people to get out of the area. And during the press conference, Governor DeWine explained the harm that could come to people who stayed. He became quite emphatic about it. Everyone in Pennsylvania and Ohio who's in this area, you know, you need to leave. You just need to leave. We're ordering you to leave. Uh, this is a matter of life and death. DeWine said people who didn't leave could be arrested, especially if they had children. But officials added they had conducted another canvas and more residents had left the area. You spoke to several people in the area over the weekend. What did they tell you? Well, some people were confused and afraid. I met Shauna Lewis. She was with her seven-year-old at a community center looking for hotel information. You know, my daughter was panicked, and it's just scary, you know. You don't know if the whole town's going to blow up. You just don't know. That sounds scary indeed. I, I want to ask you, how dangerous are the chemicals that we're talking about that were being transported? The biggest concern is that chemical we mentioned earlier, vinyl chloride. It's used to make PVC plastic used in pipes, car parts, packing materials, things like that. These applications aren't typically thought to harm people, but at room temperature, vinyl chloride is a gas, so you can breathe it in. It makes people dizzy sometimes, can cause headaches. It's an, also a known carcinogen. In the few seconds we have left, how often do trains travel through this area carrying hazardous materials? Well, freight trains are kind of a constant here. This train was traveling from Illinois to Pennsylvania. That's a state that's had a big increase in oil and gas drilling over the past decade, as well as new plastics manufacturing. And this means there's a lot of transport of hazardous substances. Julie Grant is a reporter with the Allegheny Front covering environmental issues in Pennsylvania and Ohio. Thank you, Julie. Thank you. The brand new James Webb Space Telescope is still working magnificently, giving us new views of the universe as it orbits the sun. Meanwhile, back on Earth, the managers of this $10 billion instrument are thinking about how to get the most bang for the taxpayer's buck. They're contemplating a big change in how the telescope's observations get shared. And that has some astronomers worried. NPR's Nell Greenfield-Boyce has more. For hundreds of years, astronomers who peered through telescopes on the ground made records of what they saw and kept them. Originally, it was just hand drawings, and then it became glass plates, and then it was film in some cases, and eventually it was magnetic tapes. And the model was whoever went to the observatory took those data home with them, and they, you know, they just put them in their office, or they put them in some university vault. Eric Smith is at NASA's Science Mission Directorate. He says these days, space telescopes beam back data electronically, making it easy to store and share with lots of people. Any scientist whose idea it is to point the James Webb Space Telescope at a particular celestial object does get exclusive access to those observations, but only for a year. And then after that, it becomes uh, public information because the public paid for it. Increasingly, though, the federal government is pushing for more public access to taxpayer-funded research. Smith says NASA has just put out a new policy. It says that uh, all new missions should plan for zero exclusive use time 
uh, from the start. And it says existing missions should work towards that, if possible. Alessandra Aloisi is head of the Science Mission Office at the Space Telescope Science Institute, which operates the James Webb Space Telescope. She says it's currently surveying the astronomy community about whether to make its observations public immediately. This is controversial. There are very strong feelings in both ways. She says if the data is public right away, some worry it could lead to a mad rush to analyze it first, producing sloppy science. On the other hand, everybody who has a scientific idea could use those data. So what's going to happen is going to accelerate discoveries. She says that's important for a telescope with a limited lifespan. The James Webb Space Telescope isn't expected to last as long as Hubble. It's so far away, it can't be repaired. Still, the people who dole out precious telescope time have worked hard to make that process as fair as possible. And when it comes to fairness, people disagree on what this change might mean. Elot Glickman is an astronomer at Middlebury College. She says making a proposal for one of these space telescopes is a lot of work. She remembers the first one she did for Hubble. I must have spent about two weeks on it, full time. Her teaching load means she has limited time to analyze the data she gets. And already, other teams can be ready to pounce the moment it becomes public. She worries if it's all available to everyone immediately. People who have time, people who have resources will be able to jump in and kind of, I don't know, deflate the hard worker who earned that, that observation. But some say it could level the playing field because astronomers who weren't able to get a proposal through the highly competitive selection process could use other people's data to work on their own different ideas. Jackie Faraday is an astronomer at the American Museum of Natural History. I am very conflicted about this topic. I don't think it's black and white. She loves the way open access can increase people's ability to participate in science. But when she's worked on telescope data that were going to be made available very quickly, she didn't like the rapid pace. It puts a strange amount of pressure and a mental gymnastics that you have to go through in doing your scientific work. Because of the fear that a competitor might beat you to it. She says if things move towards sharing telescope data immediately, maybe people should be able to request a period of exclusive access, like if they're new to the field and will need more time, or if they have other life circumstances that would make it hard to act fast. Nell Greenfield Voice, NPR News. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up on All Things Considered, federal officials investigate the deaths of four Americans on cruises to Antarctica. Follow the news tomorrow morning with WBUR. Tap to listen on the WBUR mobile app while you're working out or heading out the door to work. Tonight will be cloudy at first, then skies will clear overnight with temps in the mid-20s. We'll have a sunny start tomorrow, then clouds arriving by afternoon and a high around 36 degrees. Wednesday should be sunny with temperatures in the upper 40s. Right now it's 42 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC. 
Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that bring joy to your life. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Send your gift nearly anywhere in New England, and your support will bring you stories you won't hear anywhere else. Order now to save 10% on all four choices, including a 12-month Flower of the Month subscription that begins with a rose arrangement on Valentine's Day. Visit WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In South Carolina, recovery efforts continue off the coast of Myrtle Beach for the remains of a Chinese surveillance balloon that U.S. officials shot down over the weekend. That giant balloon was hovering over U.S. airspace for several days. The Pentagon says it wanted to wait until it was over water to take it down so the debris wouldn't hit people on the ground. General Glenn Van Herc is commander of NORAD. He says the debris field is more than 15 football fields wide. This is a effort that's in the open ocean ongoing in approximately 50 feet of water and so we have to be very cognizant of uh, the uh, sea states uh, currents etc so we uh, continue to to move forward meanwhile chinese officials were set to meet this week with the u.s secretary of state but that meeting's been postponed as this latest incident increases tensions between the two world powers the secretary of the army paid a visit to an ammunition plant in northeast Pennsylvania today, whose artillery shells go directly to the battle in Ukraine. From member station WVIA, Kat Bolas has more. Army Secretary Christine Warmoth toured the over 15-acre Scranton Army Ammunition Facility with U.S. Senator Bob Casey and observed how 155-millimeter artillery shells are manufactured. The U.S. Army has given Ukraine's army over a million of the shells. Warmoth says with talk about a spring offensive, both Ukrainians and Russians are trying to rearm. It's very, very important uh, that we have the kind of ramped up production that you're seeing here at Scranton to be able to get more artillery to the Ukrainians. Warmoth says the Army is investing more than $17 billion into facilities like these over the next 15 years. For NPR News, I'm Kat Bolas in Scranton. Stocks finish lower across the board on Wall Street today. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Massachusetts' highest court is considering whether to raise the age at which someone can be sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole from 18 to 21. The state Supreme Judicial Court heard arguments involving two cases in which the defendants were younger than 21 when they were convicted of murder and sent to prison for life. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports. Defense attorneys argued that brain science shows those younger than 21 are impulsive and can rehabilitate. Attorney Ryan Schiff asked the justices to allow offenders under 21 to be eligible for parole after 15 years. We're not asking you to release anybody from prison. All we're asking is that rather than throwing away the key, you place that key under the careful guard of the parole board. But Suffolk County prosecutors say people mature differently, and a judge could hold an individualized hearing to determine whether a life without parole sentence is appropriate. A ruling from the SJC is expected this summer. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Boston University's Chronic Traumatic Encephalopathy, or CTE, center has new numbers on just how prevalent the neurodegenerative disease is. In the center's brain bank, more than 91 percent of deceased former National Football League players had the disease. It's caused by repetitive head injuries. Anne McKee runs the center. It is 
exceedingly high. And it's not something that you would ever get by chance alone. McKee says BU's brain bank is not representative of living football players since it's not random which brains are donated. But the rate of CTE is much higher among the deceased former players than in community brain banks, where CTE is seen in 0 to 3 percent of brains. The National Football League has acknowledged a link between the game and the disease. Copley Place is closed the rest of the day because of a sprinkler system malfunction caused by recent cold weather. A spokesman says the shopping mall expects to reopen tomorrow. Meanwhile, Boston Medical Center's emergency department is back open today after closing Saturday because of a burst pipe. BMC says patients may experience longer wait times as they work to restore full operations. It's 535. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by JBS Home Inspections with condo common area inspections, as well as home inspections for buyers and sellers throughout Greater Boston. JBSinspections.com. Skies will gradually clear tonight. We'll have a low temperature in the mid-20s. Tomorrow will start out bright and sunny, but clouds will move in over the course of the day. Temps will be in the mid-30s. And Wednesday, mostly sunny and warmer with a high around 47 degrees. Right now it's 42 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part time controller specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Procter and Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, plant based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. And we go next to a place we rarely hear from firsthand, Iran. Since last September, the country has been rocked by anti-government protests. The economy is tanked with prices doubling or even tripling. Well, our co-host Mary Louise Kelly and her team have just landed for a week of reporting. It is the first time since 2021 that NPR has been granted a visa to visit. Hey, Mary Louise. Hey, Juana. So you've been out and about in Tehran today. How freely were you and the team able to move around there? Um, pretty freely, actually. The paralyzing traffic in this city notwithstanding. Um, we are working with an interpreter who was assigned to us by, by the government contractor who helps us with visas. But we've been able to decide where we want to go, who we want to talk to, what we want to ask. So we started just trying to get a cross-section of people. We went to the Grand Bazaar, which is this just huge, I think you can actually hear a little bit of the, the hubbub of it behind me now, this huge bazaar, and people are in there on a weekday. It is packed, um, nearly knocking you over, and they're, and they're haggling over everything from socks to shower faucets to carpets, you name it. So we talked to people there for a while, then we made our way down to Manicheri Street. This is this iconic street in South Tehran, trying to talk to, you know, different people going about different business. There were vendors with their wares spread out across the sidewalk. And we just stopped and asked everyone who would talk to us, you know, how how is life here? How's the economy? What is on your mind? And what did those people that you've been talking to tell you? Well, you know, the central question I'm asking all through this trip is going to be, what is the state of dissent here? It, the 
The anti-government protests have largely been crushed. Tehran feels calm today as you drive around. But have the grievances that fueled those protests been crushed? And we talked to a lot of people today who, who told us no. Um, we spoke with one very young man, 18 years old. I'm not going to use his name. We're, almost everyone we talked to today we, we spoke to on condition that they not be named. People are really nervous, Wana, about talking to an American journalist. Um, but let me let you listen to him. He is super angry about inflation, and he is specifically angry at the regime. It's so hard to live in Iran, really. Believe me, it's so hard. Do you feel like you have a future? No. I hope I will die. It's so better from living in here. You can't do anything. I hope I will die. That's what he's saying there. I mean, you can, you can hear the emotion. I will say we spoke to other people here who, at least in conversation with me, seem to buy the government line, uh, which is that the U.S. is to blame for a lot of people's problems here. So, Mary Louise, I know that you were most recently in the country about three years ago, right before the start of the pandemic. So I'm hoping you can just compare your experiences for us. Do things feel differently today? Yeah, I mean, I suppose the most striking thing is just the pure visual of women walking down the street in Tehran with their hair uncovered. I mean, the, the majority of people we saw out and about today were still wearing hijab. It remains the official dress code here. But we saw young women, old women walking around. I looked, glanced over at the cafe at lunch and the woman at the table beside us is sitting there with her hair not covered. I did not see that three years ago. Um, so it mm. appears that they are not enforcing the hijab rule now. Whether that will remain the case going forward, I, I, who's to say? But it's fascinating because, of course, these recent protests that have roiled the country for the last five months or so were sparked by the death of a 22-year-old woman, Masa Amini, who died in police custody after allegedly violating the conservative dress code. So that's one of many things that we are asking people about. We're here all week trying to talk to both officials and regular people, and we're going to share more of what we know in the coming days. Mary Louise, we're looking forward to hearing more of your reporting. Thank you. Thank you, Juana. That's our co-host, Mary Louise Kelly, who, along with her team, is on the ground for us in Tehran. Now some news out of the Justice Department. Two people, including a neo-Nazi leader, are facing federal charges for allegedly plotting to attack power substations around the city of Baltimore. NPR Justice correspondent Ryan Lucas is covering this. And Ryan, tell us about who the defendants are and what they're being charged with. The defendants are Brandon Russell and Sarah Clendaniel. Both of them have a criminal history. Uh, Clendaniel served time for an armed robbery holding up a convenience store. Uh, she appears to share white supremacist views. There's a photo of her in the court papers actually holding what looks like an assault rifle and wearing tactical gear with a swastika on it. Uh, Russell, for his part, he previously served time for possessing bomb-making materials, but he's really the important figure here, and that's because he's the founder of this neo-Nazi group called Adam Waffen Division. Uh, this is a group that the government and researchers say is violent. They say it's dangerous. Uh, the group is said to have cells in several states, and its members have targeted racial minorities, the LGBTQ community, and others, as well as uh, critical infrastructure. And tell us about the alleged plot here. Right. So Russell and Clendaniel are both charged with conspiring to destroy an energy facility. And according to court papers, the plan here was to use guns to attack five electrical substations in the Baltimore area, 
all in one day. The idea being that hitting all of those in quick succession would have uh, a sort of cascading effect that would cripple the city's power grid. Now, according to the court papers, Clendaniel told a confidential human source, so a government informant, that if they managed to hit all five of the substations, it would, quote, probably permanently completely lay the city to waste. The city here, of course, being Baltimore. Now, the confidential informant appears to have played an important role in this investigation. Uh, Russell and Clendaniel were talking in detail about their plans with the source, and that includes talk about what weapons to use, and even sharing links on Google Maps pinpointing uh, potential targets. There have recently been attacks on power stations in several states. Is this alleged plot somehow connected to those incidents? Well, that's a good question, but uh, we don't really have an answer at this point, and that's because some of those earlier cases haven't been solved. One of the cases you're referring to would be uh, attacks on electrical substations in North Carolina uh, in December. They were hit by gunfire, thousands of homes and businesses uh, in the state lost power. Authorities have said that those attacks appeared to be deliberate. No arrests have been made, though, so we don't know who was responsible. And, of course, we also don't know what their motive was. What we do know, though, is more broadly that white supremacists have talked in the past and more recently about targeting critical infrastructure, things like power facilities, things like power substations. Uh, and research suggests that that trend is increasing. Uh, George Washington University's program on extremism had a report out uh, and it found that between 2016 and 2022, 13 people with ties to the white supremacist movement were charged in federal court with plotting attacks on the energy system. Why would neo-Nazis focus on the power grid? Well, there's a practical side. Uh, power substations, for instance, are often easier targets to hit than, say, a, a, a government facility that's well-protected, a sort of hardened facility. Uh, but researchers say that attacks on critical infrastructure uh, are also meant to help accelerate what white supremacists want, the collapse of government and society more generally. The authorities are aware of this threat, and the Department of Homeland Security issued a warning recently that critical infrastructure could be targeted. The difficult thing, of course, though, is preventing attacks. Now, in this case, in this investigation here today, officials are saying that that's exactly what they managed to do. That's NPR Justice correspondent Ryan Lucas. Thank you. Thank you. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The Coast Guard and the National Transportation Safety Board are joining an international investigation. It follows a series of casualties on cruises to Antarctica. Four Americans died on cruise ships in three separate incidents in November. And as NPR's Greg Allen reports, the probe throws a spotlight on the popularity and perils of cruising to one of the most inhospitable locations on the planet. It was once seen as remote and inaccessible, but for anyone with at least several thousand dollars to spend, a trip to Antarctica is now possible. If you spend enough, you can do it in luxury. But as with all travel, there are risks. This wave hit it and came over and literally broke through windows and just washed into these rooms. Tom Trusdale was on a Viking cruise ship with his wife Pam in November, heading back to port in Ushuaia, Argentina, when a rogue wave slammed into the ship. He described it to ABC News. And not only did it wash into the rooms, but it broke walls down and some walls went into the next room. One person died and four were injured in that incident. The Trusdales also had a scare when a rigid inflatable Zodiac boat they were in suddenly lurched, 
injuring one passenger and sending another one for a brief time into the frigid water. In another incident, a Zodiac boat from a Portuguese flagged ship, World Explorer, capsized with six passengers on board. Two Americans died. Another person died in November aboard a Netherlands flight Antarctic cruise ship. The Coast Guard and the NTSB will examine those accidents and make recommendations on how to improve safety on Antarctic cruises. Despite those accidents, this tourism season in the Antarctic is posed to set new records for cruise lines. More than 100,000 people are expected to book Antarctic cruises this season, up nearly a third from the number who traveled there three years ago. Stuart Sheeran writes and talks about the cruise industry as the cruise guy. There's a lot of pizzazz that may go into, you know, being able to say, hey, I was down in uh, Antarctica. Not too many people have been there. It's like going to space. So now that there are better accommodations, nicer accommodations going to this region of the world, more people are willing to do it. Sheeran says after a two-year interruption because of the pandemic, the demand for Antarctic travel may have led some operators to offer more cruises earlier in the season, when seas are rougher. As alluring as Antarctica is as a destination, Becca Pincus says passengers need to be aware of the risks and consequences of accidents there. Pincus, who directs research and policy at the Wilson Center's Polar Institute, says the hazards include frigid water and very choppy seas. It's an ocean that surrounds the landmass. But because it's this really wide open ocean space, the wind travels across that surface almost without obstacles. So the fetch is unlimited and that kicks up big waves. For now, there are no limits on how many cruise ships or passengers can visit Antarctica. An industry group, the International Association of Antarctica Tour Operators, provides some oversight and coordinates activities like excursions and landings on the continent during the busy season. Pincus says the industry itself may act to limit tourism and the number of ships visiting Antarctica. The cruise ships really want to give the impression that when you are down in Antarctica, you are alone in a wilderness. And so they usually try to stay out of sight of each other. That can be difficult with as many as five cruise ships sharing one landing site on certain days. Pincus worries about the environmental impact tourism may have on Antarctica if it's not regulated or constrained. But on the positive side, she says people who visit and love the Antarctic can help build support for tackling the biggest threat facing the polar regions, climate change. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for listening to All Things Considered here on 90.9 WBUR and the WBUR Listen app. Coming up, we'll examine the state of U.S.-China relations after the downing of a suspected Chinese spy balloon that flew into U.S. airspace. Tonight will start off cloudy, then should clear out with a low in the mid-20s. After sun tomorrow morning, clouds will move in. Tomorrow's high should be around 36 degrees. Wednesday will warm up. Temps will be in the upper 40s under sunny skies. Thursday, the clouds return and we'll have a chance of rain by afternoon. The high should be around 45. And Friday, we should have partly sunny skies, but also a chance of rain. Right now, it's 42 degrees in Boston. Growing up as an immigrant, I often felt like there were these two competing ideas of romantic love, or what it should be. There's the classic falling in love at first sight that we celebrate in American pop culture. And then there's this quote, more practical version that says, love will grow with time as long as your values align. The two ideas felt at odds to a younger me, but the slightly wiser me, the journalist me, knows there's more than one way to understand big, complex ideas. 
I'm Yasmin Ammer, and I'm a reporter at WBUR. We want to keep bringing you new perspectives and tell stories to deepen our understanding of one another. You will help us do that when you send your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR. Visit WBUR.org to get started. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Late on a Wednesday night last year, I went to a jazz club that's been around for over half a century. Blues Alley here in Washington, D.C. is a place where many greats have played. Dizzy Gillespie, Sonny Rollins, Sarah Vaughan... On this September night, a newcomer graced the stage who is already on a path to follow in their footsteps, Samara Joy. This is my first time in DC. Last night, the 23-year-old won two Grammy Awards, not only Best Jazz Vocal Album, but Best New Artist Across All Genres. Oh my gosh, I can't even believe, I've been watching y'all on TV for like so long. <laughs> so <laughs> to be here with you all, born and raised in the Bronx, New York, my family's here. <laughs> when Samara Joy came into NPR the morning after her Blues Alley show in DC, she told me she only started singing jazz at age 18, but she comes from a musical family. My dad, he's a bass player, so it was a lot of like funk and like soul and R&B. But also, he was the one who mainly grew up in church and grew up playing in church. And um, his parents, my grandparents, they had a, a choir called the Savets of Philadelphia. But he also used to tell stories about the fact that they had a Godmobile. Like they had, they rented a van, and they called it the Godmobile. They like painted it really big on the car, and they would ride around Philly and just pick a corner and literally have church on any corner that they could, <laughs> that they felt you know led to do. And he would play, and they would you know they would do praise and worship, and my my grandparents you know would preach. So on this album, you do some really well known standards like <laughs> Misty and Round Midnight. When you approach a song like that, do you do a ton of research and listen to the way others have approached it, or do you try to come to it with a clean slate and bring your own interpretation? I think with songs like that, because at least at this point, because I've listened to them already and I already have a version in my head that I love, I, I do a, a bit of both. I'm like, oh, I love the way Ella, you know, sings this phrase, but I can't copy, you know, I can't, I can't copy exactly. So it's a bit of a mix. Can you give us an example? Like, can you take a moment in one of these tracks and say, oh, well, so-and-so might have done it this way, but... Well, in Misty, there's a live performance of Ella, and she's like, walk my way. A thousand violins begin to play. She does it. She like walks up and it's like, it's so beautiful and majestic. I was like, I have to do that. (laughs) (laughs) And I think I did. I think I recorded it like that. Walk my way. And a thousand violins begin to play. But I know that when we came up with the arrangement, I wanted it to be, you know, simple and just give the song space to breathe. But I added um, kind of a little bit of a scale in the beginning and at the end to give it some mystery. 
There are also some of your own lyrics on this album. Tell yes. us where we can hear them. You can hear my own lyrics on Nostalgia. Nostalgia hit me as I recalled the day I knew that I loved you. Nostalgia, the melody that you're singing here was originally a trumpet line. Mm-hmm. What made you decide to put words to it? I was in class, and <laughs> my professor, John Thaddis, is like, what do you have to present today? And I was like, okay, I listened to um, Nostalgia again. I really love it. And this is one solo that I knew that he would, I guess, appreciate me doing and learning. And this professor is a famous trumpet player. Yes. (laughs) The way you smiled was a work of art. You wouldn't believe how it thrilled me. He was like, yep, keep going. (laughs) Keep going. Finish it. Let's listen to a little bit of it. Okay. Does it still make you embarrassed to hear yourself? Really? (laughs) Wow, that surprises me. (laughs) You're blushing. A little bit. (laughs) But on stage, you're just so chill and relaxed. I think the people helped. I figured after all this time and all these years together, all the memories made that you would be tired by now. Tell us about where these lyrics came from. So, nostalgia. The album cover is a trumpet on a bench. And so I was like, hmm, you know, Fats Navarro, he died from tuberculosis and and he was only 26 years old. And looking at that trumpet on the bench, I was like, well, what if he was, you know, 60 or 70 years old and he was able to look at the person he loved and, you know, and and recall the day that they first met. He might have been like playing at a gig or something. I was just trying to imagine, you know, and I used the, the... model of my own parents. They're celebrating 31 years of marriage in November. So I wanted to try to use that example of like long-term love and, and apply it to this situation. And now the feelings are just as strong as when I first laid eyes on you. You won the prestigious Sarah Vaughan International Jazz Vocal Competition when you were 19 years old. Yes. And jazz audiences tend to be older folks these days. Mm-hmm. What do you think the secret is to attracting younger fans to this music? Hmm. Most of the younger people that I see are musicians themselves, too. So I, I, I've been trying to get on TikTok and, <laughs> and um, be more active on social media because that's where my generation is. And I, you know. <laughs> you say you're trying to get on TikTok, yeah. but like. But in your dreams, whatever they be, make me a promise. You just kind of offhandedly sang a version of Dream a Little Dream that racked up close to 2 million views. Yeah. Dream a little dream. So I think you're succeeding at doing, being on TikTok. Doing all right. I, I really only started um, doing TikTok in January of this year. I posted a couple of videos and a month later, 100,000 people. I was like, I can't. <laughs> this is too This is too much. You know, the fact that in, in just a month, you know, that many people and, and people are now like coming up to me like, I found you on social media. I found you on TikTok and I just had to, you know, come see a show. Happened to pass your doorway, gave you a So um, I think 
anything, you know, to, to share the music. And then if people, you know, my age are attracted to it and they want to know more about it, then it's cool. Do you recall the old days? We used to have a ball. Not that I'm lonesome. That was Grammy Award winning artist Samara Joy. Her latest album is called Linger a While. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society in its hometown of Flint and communities around the world. More at mott.org. And from the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, for 30 years committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K-12 learning. More at edutopia.org. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, how car dealers can demand a higher down payment or a higher interest rate after you buy a car and drive it home. Tonight will be cloudy to start, then skies will clear overnight with temps in the mid-20s. We'll have a sunny start tomorrow, then clouds arriving by afternoon and a high around 36 degrees. Wednesday should be sunny with temps in the upper 40s. Right now it's 42 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Elliott Community Human Services, enhancing the lives of children, youth, adults, and families through transformative care and supports. ElliottCHS.org. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. There are tensions with China after the U.S. shot down a suspected Chinese spy balloon. But the U.S. has had several other incidents with Chinese surveillance balloons in recent years. So why does this one seem more serious? If we can't even, you know, manage a balloon, we are really collectively in a very bad place. It's Monday, February 6th. This is All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, how can a car dealer come back and demand a bigger down payment or a higher interest rate on your loan after you buy a car and drive it away? Viola Davis has now added a Grammy to her list of awards, so she's an EGOT, having won an Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony's. Marketplace has the day's business news at 6.30. It's 6.01. News headlines are next.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Rescue efforts continue in a wide area encompassing Turkey and Syria, where a magnitude 7.8 earthquake hit early this morning local time. The death toll has now risen to at least 3,400 and will likely go higher. NPR's Peter Kenyon says the quake was widely felt. As far north as Lebanon, as far south as Cairo, that uh, kind of sums it up. Uh, It's been called uh, by some the biggest. Others say, well, it's the second worst earthquake here in the past hundred years. But either way, it was hugely destructive. Now, the death toll is considerably lower than a deadly quake in 1999. That left more than 17,000 people dead. Uh, This is a lot less than that, of course, but officials do expect the toll to keep rising. The question is how high. NPR's Peter Kenyon, the quake toppled hundreds of residential buildings, rescuers on both sides of the border, continuing to search the rubble for additional victims or survivors. Seismologists, meanwhile, say this region of Turkey was long overdue for a major quake. NPR's Jeff Bromfell has that story. Tectonically speaking, Turkey is being squeezed between the Arabian Peninsula and the rest of Asia. That makes the entire nation an earthquake hotspot, but this particular region hadn't had a major quake for 100 years or more. Patricia Martinez-Garçon is a seismologist at GFC Potsdam in Germany. It was unusually quiet um, in the last uh, century. Now that quiet spell has come to an end with two massive quakes over magnitude 7 on the same day and more than 100 aftershocks. Martinez Garzon and other seismologists say the shaking will continue as the fault lines settle. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. The diplomatic fallout is continuing from an incident over the weekend where after tracking it for days, the U.S. shot down a suspected Chinese spy balloon off the South Carolina coast. China accusing the U.S. of indiscriminate use of force, saying it seriously damaged efforts to restore Sino-U.S. relations. China says the balloon entered U.S. airspace accidentally. The U.S. had initially considered bringing the balloon down over Montana, but waited till it was over the Atlantic. President Biden delivers his second State of the Union address tomorrow. More from NPR's Franco Ordonez. With tens of millions expected to watch, the State of the Union is an unmatched opportunity for President Biden to make his case directly to the American people for his priorities, such as raising the debt limit, the Russian war in Ukraine, and efforts to bolster the economy. He'll talk about the accomplishments of his administration, especially the bridges and tunnels being built and repaired by the infrastructure bill. And while the State of the Union is not your typical campaign speech, with such an audience, it's very much a political speech. And strategists say Biden needs to lay the groundwork for re-election by showing two visions for America, his and that of Republicans. Franco Ordonez, NPR News. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Some Boston public school students will have a quieter bus ride to school starting later this month. Mayor Michelle Wu said today the city will phase in 20 electric school buses. It's part of her administration's goal of a more environmentally friendly city. WBUR's Samuela Petricelli reports. The mayor has pledged to fully electrify Boston's school bus fleet by 2030. Speaking at a future electric charging facility in Hyde Park today, she confirmed the city is on track with that plan. And the good news is that we can stand this close to the bus and not have to worry about any exhausts or fumes or pollution. School officials say they chose bus routes for the electric vehicles based on factors including expected traffic patterns. The initial fleet will serve around 2,500 children and 42 schools. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Samuela Petricelli. 
Governor Maura Healey will be going to President Biden's State of the Union address tomorrow night. She'll be the guest of Massachusetts Congressman Richard Neal. Neal says he's delighted to be attending with the governor since she's been a steadfast advocate for the people throughout her career. In a statement, Governor Healey says she's honored to attend the address as Congressman Neal's guest. The MBTA is working to reopen the Alewife Station and Garage in Cambridge. Both have been closed since someone slammed a car into a barrier on the roof of the garage Saturday. WBUR's Dave Faniff reports. They crashed into a 10,000-pound piece of concrete from the garage to the roof of the MBTA station. T Interim General Manager Jeff Gonville says crews are still in the cleanup phase. We are then moving beyond that to begin opening up the garage using the Russell Field headhouse. And then beyond that, we will be think, focusing on the mezzanine itself and reopening of the mezzanine. Gonville says the parking garage will remain closed until at least midweek, and he has no timetable for when the station itself will reopen with access to the Russell Field headhouse. Shuttle buses will be used at Alewife in place of trains at least through the end of the week. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dave Faniff. A walkout by some per diem trial court interpreters in Massachusetts got underway today. An organizer says about 30 interpreters didn't show up for work and another seven declined to go to court and worked remotely. The workers are taking the action as they seek their first pay raise in 17 years. A spokeswoman for the Massachusetts trial court says the court's Office of Language Access made arrangements for substitute coverage. The per diem interpreters are planning to stay off the job for the rest of the week. And the forecast tonight will start off cloudy, then should clear out for a starry overnight. The low will be in the mid-20s. Tomorrow, after sun in the morning, clouds will move in. We'll see a high around 36 degrees. Then Wednesday, we'll warm up with the temps in the upper 40s around under sunny skies. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to inspiring and enabling the next generation of inventors to improve lives around the world. More information is available at lemelson.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Juana Summers, also in Washington. Given the commotion over the Chinese surveillance balloon, you'd think something like this has never happened before. But it has, at least four other times in recent years. So... Why didn't we hear about it? NPR National Security Correspondent Greg Myrie has been looking into that. Hi, Greg. Hi, Juana. So, Greg, before we talk about these past episodes, bring us up to date on the recovery of the Chinese balloon that was shot down over the weekend. What's going on there? So several Navy and Coast Guard ships are still looking for the remnants of the balloon that was shot down with a missile on Saturday afternoon just off the coast of South Carolina. It's about six miles offshore, relatively shallow water, less than 50 feet deep, and the Navy is using unmanned subs in the cold Atlantic Ocean to to look for this debris, particularly key equipment like sensors and other high-tech devices. And what does the U.S. national security community hope to learn here? Well, the U.S. says it's already learned quite a bit just by tracking the Chinese balloon for a week before it was shot down. Now, General Glenn Van Herc, he's the NORAD commander, the guy in charge of air defenses for North America. He spoke about this this afternoon, and here's how he put it. This uh, gave us the opportunity to assess what they were actually doing, uh, what kind of capabilities existed on the balloon, what kind of transmission capabilities existed. And uh, I think you'll see in the future that uh, that the time frame was uh, well worth its uh, value to collect. Okay, so let's talk now about those previous incursions by Chinese balloons. What do we now know about that? 
Uh, it's happened four times in recent years, three times during the Trump administration, once during the Biden administration. General Van Herc acknowledged that the U.S. security community did not know about these incur incursions as they were taking place. It was only after the fact the U.S. intelligence community did some forensics and pieced together what had happened. Again, here's General Van Herc. We did not detect those threats. Um, and that's a domain awareness gap that we have to figure out. The intel community, after the fact, made us aware of those uh, balloons that were previously approaching North America or transited North America. And, and Juana, he didn't provide additional details on how the intelligence community uh, pieced this together, but the incursions were believed to be brief, unlike this most recent one, which lasted for a week. Okay, lots of new information there. But Greg, how likely is that to change or shape the political back and forth that we've been seeing and hearing? Well, I guess we can hope that it will inform the debate about how these episodes were handled in the past. These previous incursions, which happened during both of Trump and Biden administrations, were not known at the time. So just to state the obvious, this information did not make it up the military chain of command and it let alone make it to the White House. Last question. Does the U.S. now feel that it has a good understanding of the Chinese balloon program? Well, at the White House, John Kirby, spokesman for the National Security Council, said the U.S. was aware in general terms of this Chinese balloon program when the Biden administration took office. But the one big unanswered question is why did the Chinese do this in such an obvious way? Chinese espionage is very sophisticated, but this was very clumsy and clunky. The Chinese knew a large balloon uh, would be detected. Mm -hmm. You know, perhaps one of the goals was to see how the U.S. would react to this kind of provocation, and I think we have an answer. It's created a partisan feud in this country, and it's certainly increased friction between the U.S. and China. That is NPR's Greg Myrie. Greg, thanks so much. My pleasure. Well, for more context, we're going to be joined now by Jessica Chen Weiss, a professor of China and Asia-Pacific Studies at Cornell University. She's also a former senior policy advisor to the U.S. State Department. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. So what do you make so far of this whole controversy over the Chinese balloon and the U.S. decision to shoot it down? First, I think it's really unfortunate. The timing in particular of this event meant that Secretary Blinken postponed indefinitely his trip to Beijing, which was even aimed at diffusing some of the tensions and putting a so-called floor under the relationship. Beyond that, I think it's, you know, kind of emblematic of where we are in the relationship, where there are activities that we are mutually doing to each other that both of us find pretty alarming. But the actual extent of the threat has unfortunately, some cases, you know, in this in one in particular, blown wildly out of proportion, if you'll forgive me <laughs> no for using intended. the word that. <laughs> well, before Secretary Blinken canceled his planned visit to Beijing, as you mentioned, how would you have characterized U.S.-China relations? I would say that we're in a pretty steep downward spiral, which really began under the Trump administration, something that the Biden administration inherited and, you know, really characterized by a sort of tit-for-tat action-reaction cycle where each of us, you know, Beijing, Washington, trying to really outcompete the other uh, to get a leg up and ensure that we're not vulnerable, uh, you know, to, to each other. And so I would say that coming out of the meeting between President 
uh, Xi Jinping and President Biden um, at the G20 summit in Bali mm-hmm. last fall, there was really an interest in, I think, on both sides in seeing a little bit more stability in the relationship. That was the momentum, so to speak, coming out of Bali. Um, and this meeting really was to try to you know, push forward there. Then it was derailed by the public firestorm over this balloon, which, you know, the timing was really bad, frankly. And I think the, the Chinese side blundered into this with their with their balloon. Well, can we talk about the rhetoric surrounding this balloon? Because after the balloon was shot down by a U.S. fighter jet, the Chinese defense ministry said that they reserved the right to use, quote, any necessary means in response. What's your assessment of that language from China? Is it more just posturing or is that a real threat to the U.S.? What's your sense? I think it is somewhere between posturing and a specific threat because this incident isn't over. There's going to be the remains or the the wreckage, the, you know, there's going to be a lot, I think, here, you know, that the Chinese side may feel the need to respond to. And that's even in advance of Representative McCarthy going to Taiwan, et cetera. And so I think that they do. Uh, you know, I think one of the risks here is that the Chinese side, for domestic reasons of their own, you know, feels pressure to respond uh, you know, to the shootdown of, of their surveillance balloon. Um, and it's not like we don't do a lot of survey, close in surveillance, uh, you know, near China. And mm-hmm. so I think there's a very real risk um, that they, you know, maybe not, I don't think they're going to shoot down one of our planes, but nonetheless, you know, they could do a lot more. And we're already having seen that tick up a lot more close in harassment, unsafe encounters, you know, really designed to show their own, you know, domestic audience uh, in China that, you know, China is not going to just like take this one on the chin. At this point, do you see a real path forward for building trust between these two countries or at least a way to decrease tensions between the U.S. and China? I would agree that this incident and the outcry has made it all the harder to find that pathway forward, which was already uh, pretty narrow and shrinking. But it also underscores the stakes here that if we can't even, you know, manage a balloon, um, which the Pentagon assessed posed no uh, military or even intelligence threat above and beyond what their low Earth orbit satellites uh, could accomplish, then it suggests that, you know, we are really collectively, uh, you know, in a very bad place for managing a potentially more serious uh, incident. And so I think that a pathway still exists, but it will really require reciprocal steps on both sides to begin to not only talk about principles to manage a relationship, but actually begin to think about what are the sets of behaviors uh, that are, you know, increasing the danger uh, on both sides, and that if uh, done, ratcheted back and kind of in a reciprocal fashion, could really bolster our collective security without necessarily coming at the expense of, of defense and deterrence. Jessica Chen Weiss is a professor of China and Asia-Pacific Studies at Cornell University and a former senior policy advisor to the U.S. State Department. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been great to be here. Last night, Viola Davis won a Grammy Award for her audiobook memoir, Finding Me. That's an achievement in itself, but for Davis, it meant something bigger. I just egot. 
EGOT, as in Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony. She now joins 17 others, including Rita Moreno, Whoopi Goldberg, and Jennifer Hudson, who've won all four awards. Viola Davis picked up her Emmy for Outstanding Actress in a Drama Series. I'm Professor Annalise Keating, and this is Criminal Law 100, or as I prefer to call it, How to Get Away with Murder. She became the first black woman to win that particular Emmy, but she's also known as a stage actor. Davis won her first Tony Award in 2001 for her role in August Wilson's play King Hedley II. Her character is pregnant. Her husband, an ex-con, wants her to keep the baby. Ain't raising no kid to have somebody shoot him, to have his friend shoot him, to have the police shoot him. Why you want to bring another life into this world that don't respect life? I don't want to raise no more babies when you got to fight to keep them alive. Davis won a second Tony for the 2010 Broadway revival of Fences, another August Wilson play. She won an Oscar in 2017 for the play's film adaptation. I gave 18 years of my life to stand in the same spot as you. Don't you think I ever wanted other things? Don't you think I had dreams and hopes? What about my life? What about me? When the movie version of Fences came out, there were several high-profile films by and about people of color, and she spoke about that with NPR's Michelle Martin. Now people are saying, this is what I have to give to the artistic community, and I'm going to give it. I'm not going to wait for Hollywood. I'm just going to do it. And I'm going to do it because I deserve to be here. Viola Davis said at the Grammys that she wrote her memoir for her six-year-old self. She's 57 now, and the third Black woman to win an EGOT. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, how a car dealer can demand a bigger down payment or a higher interest rate on your loan after you buy a car and drive it away. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by downtown Boston's new Third Space, pop-up art gallery, live performances, lunch hangout, and Thursday night events. More at downtownboston.org slash thirdspace. On Wall Street, stocks closed the day on a downward trend. The Dow dropped 0.1 percent, 35 points, to finish at 33,891. The Nasdaq fell 1 percent to end the day at 11,887. The S&P dipped 0.6 percent to close out at 4,111. Checking other business news, the computer and tech services company Dell is laying off employees. The Texas-based company said today it will cut 5 percent of its global workforce. That's more than 6,500 hundred jobs that will be lost. In Massachusetts, Dell has more than 5,000 employees. The company is not saying how many of them will be affected by the layoffs. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, committed to impact investing and socially responsible portfolios for 25 years. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. Sending Winston flowers from WBUR is an act of love that supports your commitment to learning and growing. Save 10% at WBUR.org. 
Skies will gradually clear tonight. We'll have a low temperature around 24. Tomorrow will start out bright and sunny, but clouds will move in over the course of the day. Temps will be in the mid-30s. Then Wednesday should be mostly sunny and warmer with a high around 47 degrees. Thursday, it'll be cloudy and most likely rainy by late afternoon. Thursday's temps will be in the mid-40s. Right now, it's 41 degrees in Boston. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Cars are the second biggest purchase most Americans ever make. But some car dealers engage in a practice called a yo-yo car sale that can entrap people in bad deals. NPR's Chris Arnold has found it happens more than you might think, and right now the federal government has a chance to crack down. If you've ever bought a car, you know that feeling when you've signed all the paperwork, driven off the lot, and you're like, wow, this is actually my car now. That's how Courtney Johnson felt. Well, I was excited, you know, like, I felt like I'd made a good decision as a mother. (laughs) Johnson had just had a baby when she and her husband Darren decided to buy a newer, safer car for the family. They live an hour outside of Orlando. He's a fire sprinkler inspector. She's stopped working to raise the kids. And they bought a little used Hyundai SUV. It had the backup camera. It had all the passenger and the kids' airbags in the back. It was an all-wheel drive car, so it did fit a lot of the safety features that we were looking for. But three weeks later, after the Johnsons had bought the car and taken it home, they got what's called yo-yoed. I received a phone call from the finance manager of the dealership. He told them that the financing for the car had fallen through, and if the Johnsons wanted to keep it, they had to come back and sign a contract with different terms. I was kind of confused. I thought this was a legally binding contract. You know, we've already drove off the lot. We've had this vehicle at home. You know, what do you mean it's not financed? Most of us would be confused, too. But if you've bought a car, odds are good that in the paperwork, there was some legal language saying basically that if the car dealer has trouble with the financing on their end, they can later cancel the deal. They can try to get you to agree to different terms and take the car back if you don't go along with it. It's called a yo-yo sale because they pull you back after you've already bought the car. NPR sent a survey to consumer attorneys who work on auto cases. 40 of them responded. And together, just those few dozen lawyers said that they've gotten calls from nearly 900 car buyers in just the past year who say that they fell victim to one of these yo-yo car sales. In the Johnson's case... We did end up going to the dealership. He had a second contract laying there highlighted. I didn't feel like they were being very honest with me. The New Deal raised the price of the car, paid less for their trade-in, and removed an insurance policy they had in the first deal. But the Johnsons agreed to it to keep the car. But then the dealer called them back again, saying they had to sign yet another deal. And the Johnsons thought the whole thing just seemed really fishy and said, forget it, we're not going to do that. And the dealer sent a tow truck and repossessed the car. Meanwhile, the dealer had already sold off their trade-in vehicle and didn't give it back. We both were just mind-blown at the whole entire situation. Like, how is this even possible, you know? The dealership wouldn't answer their calls, and it didn't pay off the loan on their old car. It just basically took their old car, so they were stuck paying the loan with no car for close to a year. They eventually used a chunk of their small retirement savings to pay the loan back. I just remember being, like, embarrassed confused. And amongst that period of not having a ride, 
I was like counting out change, trying to give friends money for like gas to get places. The Johnson sued and eventually won, but in NPR's survey, the consumer attorney said about half the time, the dealer tells the customer it's too late to get their trade-in vehicle back. So what happened to the Johnsons? It is not a one-off random thing. It does happen all too frequently. John Van Alst is an attorney with the National Consumer Law Center. He says usually when you finance a car through the dealer, technically you owe the dealership the money for the car. But basically they wanna quickly sell your loan off to say the credit arm of Ford or Toyota or some other auto lender. And that's why they often put in the fine print that if they have trouble doing that, they can undo the sale and take the car back from you. They want you to feel bound by the contract, but they wanna be able to walk away. Van Alst says to get you to buy the car, the salesperson might agree to a monthly payment that's too low. Sometimes the car dealer made a mistake and thought they'd be able to find a lender. But oftentimes it's used as a technique by dealers to try to force consumers into a worse deal. In other words, the salesperson knows the payment is too low. The deal is too good to be true, but they let you think you've bought the car anyway. You've signed all the paperwork, you go home, you show it to your friends, your family, and then they call you back a day or two later and say, oh no, you're going to have to accept a 8% higher interest rate. And at that point, it's a whole lot more difficult for the consumer to walk away. The dealer might have already sold their trade-in. That's called unhorsing the car buyer because they don't even have their old trade-in car anymore. So they are then sort of at the mercy of the car dealer. All this is especially relevant right now because the Federal Trade Commission is crafting a new set of rules for car dealers nationwide, and it could crack down. In requesting public comment for its rulemaking, the FTC is asking directly, should we do something specifically to address the problem of yo-yo car sales? Consumer advocates emphatically say yes, but the industry says no. Paul Mitri is with the National Automobile Dealers Association. He says there is nothing wrong with these sales contracts that give dealers the right to cancel the sale later. We're really talking about a situation where you have tens of millions of transactions where this happens all the time. Mitri says most dealers try to avoid calling people back and rarely do because if the buyer walks away, the dealer gets stuck with a car with more mileage on it, making it worth less. And also, and perhaps most significantly, you have an unhappy customer. The reputation of the dealership is key. The Dealer Association says car buyers like the current system the way it is, and changing the rules would create unnecessary delays. Of course, Mitri says there are always going to be bad actors at some dealerships, but... To the extent there is an issue, it's something that can be addressed under current federal and state law. Still, NPR has found that tougher rules for dealers can make a difference. In 2015, a law to crack down on yo-yo sales went into effect in Maryland. It says after four days, a car sale is final and that dealers can't sell your trade-in until then. NPR obtained complaint data from the state AG's office, and it shows that complaints about yo-yo car sales have since fallen by more than half. And with yo-yo sales, there are sometimes some pretty bad outcomes. NPR spoke to two different car buyers where the dealer actually reported the car stolen after the buyer resisted bringing it back or signing a second sales contract. One night I'm just driving, and next thing you know, I get pulled over by the police. 
I got my girlfriend in the car, my little brother. Andre Flint bought a Camaro about a year ago from a used car dealer near Cleveland. But then he says he got tangled up in a yo-yo sale situation. The dealer was trying to get him to bring the car back. Flint said he would, but then he didn't. And the dealer reported the car stolen. Flint says when the police pulled him over, he had the paperwork showing he bought the car legally. They got me at, at the back of the car. One officer's talking about why is he pulling me over when all the paperwork and everything is in my name. And I'm like, it's so many cop cars behind me, it looked like I robbed a bank. Flint says it was scary. Because it's like, you know, no offense, I'm black too. So it's like any slight movement, anything, man. It, it could have been just all downhill. And, you know, it, it was just, it was terrifying. It shook my girl up because we didn't know what was going to happen. The officers arrested Flint and he spent two nights in jail before he managed to sort it out and get released. Nobody should have to go through something like that when you actually didn't do anything, man. In a letter to the Federal Trade Commission, 18 state attorneys general urged the FTC to do more to stop the harm caused by yo-yo sales. They said the FTC should consider an outright ban on dealers allowing consumers to take a vehicle before the financing is really final. Chris Arnold, NPR News. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Start your day with us tomorrow as Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi talks with Jennifer Root Bannon, the sister of Justin Root. He was shot and killed by police in Chestnut Hill in 2020 after a chase that started at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Root Bannon is appealing the dismissal of a lawsuit filed in her brother's death against the city of Boston, Boston police and state police. Listen for Rupa's conversation tomorrow when you wake up. Skies will clear overnight tonight with temps in the mid-20s. We'll have a sunny start tomorrow, then clouds arriving by afternoon with a high around 36 degrees. Marketplace is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Volante Farms in Needham, with farm-to-table sandwiches and salads available year-round. Heated greenhouse seating area now open. Menu at volantefarms.com.